Welcome to the Doc G Show, a radio show cluster. F Without further ado, critics have said he has the face for radio and a voice for silent films. Your host, Ben Doc G Gordon. And we are on the air. Welcome to the Doc G Show. I'm your host, Doc G. With me, as always, the one, the only, Mikey Maximus the Furnicus. Say what? Charette. Doc G, what is up, sir? I almost screwed up on your intro. For some reason, I still write it down, even though I know your name, Mike. I don't know. I <laughs> still put it in here, Blam. but I still have, and I put Mister this time, Mister Mikey Maximus, mm. and I and and I saw Mister, like, and I was like, ah, ah, ah. It almost screwed me up, but luckily, it's quick on my toes. Quick on my yeah. toes, Mike. How you doing? Sounded good either way. Ah, uh, eight point five. Yeah, you know the huge eight point five out of ten. Yeah, I feel really good. Hitting standard. Yeah. I like it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I like it for show, for show, for show. Limonada. Limonada. Yeah, some limonada. Mm, it's not bad. This this brew is is pretty tasty. Mm. Yeah, it looks disgusting. <laughs> yeah, it's pee water. It's fine. Uh, it looks exactly like pee water. <laughs> somebody's really dehydrated, and I just said, "Can I get a little squirt?" Yeah, there we go. Nice. Uh, it is Girl, way on. to start it off on a disgusting route, Mike. I am excited about our opening because let me tell you what we got last week. I entertained the idea of a movie out there. My brother had told me about this movie. I'd never watched this movie. Uh, it's a movie uh, from the 70s about being a lifeguard with Sam Elliott. That's about all I knew. Hmm. And I looked it up, and uh, there's not too much more than that. Nope. That's pretty much it. It's uh, 1976, Lifeguard, right? And I told the listeners, hey, I'd review it. And you know what? Guess what, listeners? I did. And not only that... So did Mike. Yes, I also reviewed it. Sweet. Oh, amazing. Amazing. And yeah. uh, I'm going to tell you right now, if you weren't like me and Mike, and you didn't watch this piece of cinema, <laughs> spoiler alert, I'm about to give all the deets of the movie. So if you've been yes. meaning to watch this movie for the last 47 years, <laughs> but you haven't got around to it and don't want us to ruin it, don't listen to the next 10 minutes or so of the show. Um, yeah. Okay. So could be twenty. Let's. Yeah. Oh, it could be the whole show. We could make the whole show about <laughs> really this movie. So. Yeah. So first off, Mike, title, lifeguard. <laughs> you you got to say this is they, they they nailed it, right? Yeah, they did. I mean, it's pretty straightforward. They didn't try to overthink it. They were like, you know what, lifeguard. There yeah. we go. That's it. So mm -hmm. first off, high high score for the uh, for the title. Now, yeah. the movie starts off, and uh, they let you know from the get-go, Mike, that the 1970s L.A. beach is full of sexual predators and pervs. <laughs> and that's pretty much how they start off. They start off, there's a ragtag gang of, of teens that just uh, like to... Uh, be predators. They just run around and yeah. steal ladies' <laughs> bikinis and apparently yeah. attack them in the water. Mm -hmm. And the lifeguard's yeah. like, "Yeah, it's cool." And boys you're, will be boys. You're like, I, I don't know if that should be. Should we just? We're gonna let that go. Okay. All right. Now, along with that, Mike. Second thing you realize is from the get go, 
Rick's life is dope. Yeah. Rick is the lifeguard, listeners. Rick Carlson. And mm-hmm. I mean, from the beginning, you get this montage. He's hanging at the beach. You finish Great it. montage. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. You finish up work. <laughs> you go cruising home in your sweet Stingray Corvette. How the f*** did you uh, swing that? Beautiful. Beautiful car. You get this amazing car. You're a, you're a <laughs> lifeguard. Everybody talking about your crappy job, and somehow you swing this American legend of a car like... Yeah, it doesn't make any sense. Come on. Then you go home, and I mean, I didn't see the outside, but it seems like a pretty nice apartment, you know? Oh, yeah. And you got you got a... I think it's a house. It's yeah. like a proper house. You got a smoking hot flight attendant waiting for you at your place. You know, she's all excited to see you. It seems like awesome life from the get-go for Rick Carlson. That's a fact. Now, mm-hmm. problem one arises in the plot, Mike. Problem one. Uh, Ricky decides to be a sexual predator. Jeez. So that's sort of the big the big deal here. Uh, Rick has sex with a 17-year-old, mm-hmm. and he's a 33-year-old man. Um, now, if the show How to Catch a Predator existed back then, Chris Hansen would have been outside that little lifeguard tower. Like, excuse me, sir. <laughs> what What is going on here? Can we talk about what you just did? Can we just talk about this? But this is this is sort of the crux of the whole, uh, well, part of the whole story. It's not it's not the whole story, but it's a big part. Is uh, he does he has uh, sex with a seventeen year old? Now, two things about that, Mike. And I don't know if you have anything on this you want to throw in. Um, but one, the real life actress that played Wendy was 22 when they filmed it. So I will say that. She was a bit mm-hmm. she's a bit older, of course, than she actually yeah. was uh, uh, supposed to be. Two, I like one of the things that he did to impress her, to get her to, uh, you know, uh, get all jonesing for uh, some Rick uh, action, was that he told her the time by making a sundial with a pencil in the sand. Word. Pro-lifeguard move right there. <laughs> he's, he's, <laughs> he's setting on the stand, and she's like, hey, you know what time it is? And he's like, uh, yeah, I do. And he goes into the stand, and I'm like, oh, he's just going to look at a watch. And he comes out with a pencil. He jumps off the stand, throws it into the ground, makes a circle, and he's like, eh, it's about 4 o'clock. And I'm like, huh? Really? You didn't just have a watch somewhere up there that you could have been like, it's 4 no, no, no. And then she was actually like, holy shit, I got to get with this dude. This guy, this guy, this guy knows how to make a sundial. Get out of here. This is crazy. This is crazy. You got anything on that, Mike? Anything on the Wendy situation? Um, my favorite part was uh, this little dialogue here when he was like, I mean, come on, you got to be what, 15 years old? <laughs> and then she was like, I'm 17. And then he's like, What's your name? <laughs> Checks out. Sounds, uh, sounds, sounds uh, not 15? Insane. No, sounds like you're pretty old then. Like, yeah. Yeah, it didn't, I'm going to be honest. It didn't take too much convincing. That was one of those things that you're like, no, that's not uh, good. That's so funny. Now, uh, either uh. before or after his disastrous choices with a minor, uh, he runs into an old bro from school. That would mm-hmm. be Larry. 
Um, now, Larry is apparently about to become a millionaire from selling Porsches. <laughs> which Pretty much. I got to say, I didn't know that was possible, especially in the 70s. I, I looked it up. Porsches ran between 20,000 and maximally 50,000 at this time. So how many Porsches do you have to be the salesman on to be like, you know what? Mm. I'm a millionaire. Pretty Good awesome. Yeah. Like, doesn't seem very viable, you know? But no. nonetheless, Larry tells Rick, you got to ditch this lifeguard thing and get into the money-making biz, my man. Word. And Ricky's not about it. He's not too interested. He's like, ah, eh, sounds pretty cool, I guess. Maybe, I don't know. We'll look into it. But they change the subject. They talk about Kathy, an old supposed flame from high school. And they talk about it. But you see Rick's eyes light up. You're like, oh, he's really digging this Kathy lady. This is, this is the only reason he wants to go to his yeah. high school reunion is because Kathy, which, by the way, listeners, I didn't bring it up. It's mentioned at the beginning. It's not mentioned. It's referenced. He gets the letter in the mail for his 15th anniversary high school reunion, hmm. and he decides to go. He goes to uh, the reunion. Everything's sort of going good, Mike, but he realizes mm-hmm. he's sort of a loser because he's still a lifeguard. Everybody's got mm. these weird corporate jobs. They're like, oh, I'm in accounting. Oh, I do this. Oh, I do that. And by the end, he can't even tell people that he's a lifeguard. He's ashamed of it, Mike. He's like, oh, I work for the city. Oh, I'm an accountant. Bull Rick, you're a <laughs> lifeguard at heart. You know it. But regardless, he does start to talk to this old flame, Kathy. Now, man, was I, I amazed by this, Mike. Yeah. She ends up inviting him to her house after like mm-hmm. an hour. Huh? Like, how <laughs> how needy are you, Kathy? Good Lord. And she invites him to the house. She introduces him to her kid in the yeah. first, like, the, as soon as they get there. What? I would have been like, Kathy, this is over right now. Is, <laughs> we're done. We're done here, man. Like, and But amazingly, Rick was cool with it. You're like, what? So They true. start hanging, you know? And, and he's hanging out with the kid. He's in the pool with him and all this stuff, right? Oh, yeah. Having a great time. It's wild. He, see, he seems to really dig being with Kathy. They start up a little... They start mm-hmm. up a little rendezvous there. And Kathy wants Rick to take the job at, at Porsche. And then and then, then it starts, Mike. Then all all the walls start crumbling in on, on Rick in the movie. Mm-hmm. Lots of montages at yeah. this point. Yeah, you, you, you start... Lots of driving montages. He's got to think about it, man. He's got to <laughs> think about it. And where do you think? You think in your Stingray. You think in your Corvette, you know? That's a fact. And he he goes out there, and he's thinking about it. Kathy wants him to get the real job. He goes to see his parents. His parents come down on him. His, his effing parents are like, get a job, you loser. And he's like, ah, oh, he's, he's feeling it on all sides, you know? And right when he feels the pressure from all sides, Wendy, uh, the minor that he sexually abused, comes back, can't handle it. She tries to kill herself by drowning herself in the ocean. Crazy. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Crazy, Mike. Rick has to save her from drowning. And then, of course, in a classic uh, just open end of uh, 70s movies, just like, hey, go back to school. Huh? 
yeah. and that's it. Just <laughs> sends her along her way in her ca- car. She's like, yeah, I will go back to school. She's like, all right. Yeah, I guess so. All right. And I was like, I feel like she might need more help than that. <laughs> <laughs> oh, no. But then he goes and tells Kathy about the whole situation with his, his underage lady. And you're like, what? Huh? And she was cool with it. She's all casually yeah. like, I'm sure the girl will be fine. And I'm just like, what, were you raped when you were 17 too? This is, what's <laughs> going on? This is crazy. <laughs> but it comes down uh, to a boiling point, Mike. And he's got to decide whether he's going to take a job as a Porsche dealer mm-hmm. uh, and make everybody, including his parents and, and Kathy, happy. Or is he going to live his life the way he wants to? You know? Which, which is being a lifeguard. Yeah. And you know what? Rick chooses to live his life. Spoiler alert. Yes. Rick, Rick chooses to do exactly what he wants, which is to be a lifeguard. To wave at mm-hmm. the old guy jogging in the morning. Yeah. To oversee <laughs> sexual assaults on the 1970s beach. To occasionally rescue an asshole that's drowning, that's non-appreciative. He chooses to do all that, Mike. Yep, he does. Now, Mike, I'm not going to defend everything that Rick did because, well, part of it was statutory rape. But, <laughs> yeah. but he made the right choice for himself career-wise in the end. He did. He chose his happiness. And I got to say, Mike, all in all, I give the movie a very high grade. I'm giving it a high B. I say 88. <laughs> 88, Mike. I'll say, yeah, I'll say about the same, yeah. 88. Oh, gosh, so many twists and turns, Mike. I loved it. I loved yes. it. Yes. And you know what? I think we all need to to choose the, the Rick way of life. Definitely not the criminal part. Mm-hmm. Just talking yeah, about the, the career decision <laughs> part. We need yeah. to choose happiness mike happiness mm-hmm. in our career you know what makes me happy mike hmm what what makes you happy doc g the doc g show that makes, makes me, me happy, happy. yes mm-hmm. yes yeah. are you ready to fire it up what doc g i'm sorry i got to, i got a couple notes wait what? couple notes by all means i'm ready to fire up the doc g i just want no, no, to no 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 let's go back listeners okay put it on pause take your take your Finger off the ignition button. Mike has some some ideas here on lifeguard. What do we got? First of all, I forgot to mention that I am wearing a t-shirt and bell-bottom jeans, and I did tuck it in for this segment. So oh my to, gosh, you came top, prepared. You know? I love it. Yeah. Um, so true. Second thing was uh, I didn't I hadn't signed into Amazon in a while. Doc G Air is on Amazon, so I'm definitely going to check out that movie next. Mm. Air. The Michael Jordan story. Mm, um, I didn't know that. Wow, it's already yeah. on there. All right, is that our next movie? We're doing it. All right. I'm checking it out. Definitely. Uh, all right. Would I'll take some notes. I'll listeners, take some notes. listeners, if you want to get in on this, we're gonna do it in another one. I'm not telling you we're gonna be reviewing movies every week, but we're doing another one. <laughs> air, air's coming. It's happening. Air is on. Air is on. Um. Okay. So. Hmm. This is so random, uh, Doc G. I didn't like Sam Elliott's Running Gate. <laughs> nope. 
there was a running scene and he just didn't have that david hasselhoff he was he was i i agree i agree with you it's a good point when they did the little challenge i left that out listeners there was a lifeguarding challenge in the movie (laughs) and yeah he was hunched over and I mean, I, I'm guessing it was trying, maybe, maybe they told him to do it to like make him, you know, seem like the old haggard lifeguard, like he was supposed mm-hmm. to be, but he definitely was laboring. It was, it was bad looking. <laughs> yeah. I'll give you that. That's a good, the, good, good observation, Mike. Nice. I mean, I feel like you would have saw that too, Jock G. So I just wanted to uh, point that out. Yeah. Um, and then. Yeah, I mean, the only other two notes, okay, so yeah, the, we pretty much already covered that the, the 70s just made being creepy funny. Yeah, um, they, and, they uh, weren't worried about the, <laughs> the negative ramifications of it. It was completely fine. Yeah, and then the only other difference that I noticed in that movie versus, I guess, more modern movies, lots of passionate kissing in, in this lifeguard movie. Yeah. Lots of passionate kissing. Yeah. There was no movie kissing. It was They were was getting in passionate. there. They were sloppy (laughs) with it. They were. It was pretty disgusting. And I got to be honest, after COVID, Mike, um, some of those, I was like, you're just going to kiss her. And then 12 hours (laughs) later, you're going to kiss Wendy. And then 12 hours later, you're going to kiss the flight attendant. Come on now. Mm, Yeah. It's too much. It's too much. I hope these people are vaccinated. Anyways, Doc G, I am. Okay. That's all I got for lifeguard notes. Uh, I'm ready to fire up the show. So true. (laughs) Regardless, the movie. High B. Uh, High B, for sure. Questionable decisions. Needs to live in the era of the 70s and not today. But you know what? In that era, wow. Wow. Yeah. And you wow, know, wow, wow. Not, <laughs> uh, not too surprising, Mike. You, and you know how much money was put into that? You know what the budget was for that? No, what was it? $800,000. Wow. <laughs> not, wow. Not too surprising. Mike, with that, are you ready to fire up a show that has even less of a budget? Let's fire it up, Doc G. All three engines up and burning. Two, one, zero, and lift off. Oh, my gosh. So, Mike, uh, I, uh, oh, I'm sorry. Uh, I didn't, I I just realized I don't have the numbers on birthday suit, but it's all right. We'll get there. Mike. I am excited about our guest. We have a fantastic artist, Andrew Hagar, on the show. He's got a new EP coming out at the start of the summer. He's got another EP coming out at the end of the summer. Say what? Just a fantastic dude. Uh, if you couldn't tell by his uh, last name, uh, his dad is Sammy Hagar, uh, the fam- the famous rocker the uh, former leader of Van Halen, that dude. Word. And I got to say, uh, Andrew's just as fun. What? This dude is fantastic. Well, I can't say for certain he's just as fun because I've never actually met his dad. So, <laughs> yeah, I don't know. I might meet his dad and be like, I'm sorry, Andrew. He's way cooler than you. <laughs> Girl, come on. Regardless, Andrew's kicking ass. He's doing stuff. He's out there. He's got his new EP coming out. He's got his new song, Systematic Minds. Uh, We're going to talk about a whole bunch of stuff. We're going to talk about his working out. We're going to talk about working in MMA. We're going to talk about performing with Chris Christofferson back in the day. We're going to talk about going out on tour for the new dates. Can't wait to talk to him. But otherwise, Mike, we got to start where we start. The birthday suit. Happy birthday. 
And like I said, Mike, I realized I, uh, yeah, I, I, I gotta, I gotta go digging. I gotta find out what your, your numbers are here, Mike. We don't need to though. We don't have to. It's not that necessary. We'll pull it back up. Don't worry. <laughs> we'll find it. Um, we're not right now, but we'll find it. Mike, this first one you've got, you've got okay. this one. Um, okay. So born on May 17th, 1956 in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, uh, in high school, our birthday suit wearer was urged by his honors English teacher to pursue a career in acting. So he did. Hmm. Man, that's a persuasive honors English teacher. <laughs> like, I feel like if they if an English teacher told me that, I'd be like, yeah, cool. And just keep going. <laughs> like, all right. <laughs> Anyways, he went to Temple University as a film major. He started performing stand-up in New York. He graduated in 1978 and went to the University of Southern California to take classes, but then he stopped a couple of days later. After several years of working in different roles in film and TV, he landed a role as Danny Tanner on Full House in 1987. The show was extremely successful. Two years later, he started hosting America's Funniest Home Videos. I didn't know this, Mike, but in 1998, our birthday suit wear directed Dirty Work, starring mm. Norm MacDonald. Nice. I had no idea. Didn't know that. Did, yeah, yeah, no. In That's 2007, awesome. he released his HBO uh, comedy special, That Ain't Right. He released uh, his book, Dirty Daddy, in 2014. And from 2016 to 2020, he reprised his role of Danny Tanner on the sequel, Fuller House. That's right. Sadly, in 2022, our birthday suit wearer passed away after uh, a fall in his hotel room in Orange County, Florida. Name that birthday suit wearer. The legendary Bob Saget. Bob Saget is correct. Nicely done, Mike. Nicely done. Mike, uh, Google top question on Bob Saget. Did Bob Saget and John Stamos get along? Question mark. Word. Mike, the answer, they had a lifelong bond. So true. Lifelong bond, everybody. Yeah, they did. Uncle Jesse, don't forget it. Don't mm-hmm. forget when when I had uh, my uh, hair shorter and uh, I was a young buck that wasn't so grotesque as I am now. Every <laughs> now and then, people would tell me I looked like John Stamos. It was oh, yeah? it was hitting way above what I actually look like, Mike. It was one of those that I'm like, thank you. That is totally not right, but thank you. You know, I could see it. Nah, doctor, I could see it. Get out of town. Get Little out of short, town. No beard. I could see it. Ah, get out of town. He's way too sexy for me. So true. Way too sexy, but I appreciate it, Mike. Makes me feel good. You're welcome. Regardless, Bob Saget, he is fantastic. One of those guys, you know, uh, he got all, you know, he just he just seemed to be super helpful to everybody that he worked with, <clears throat> you know? Yeah, yeah, everybody loved him. Super good guy, super yeah. good guy, and, uh, you know, always working, always working. Yeah. Uh, gone too soon, Mike. Gone too soon. For sure. Dirty work just got a little bit better, though. Wow. Yeah, wild. I, I had no idea. I had yeah. no idea. And, and, you know, that makes me think a little bit higher of Bob Saget's comedy as well, that I'm like, nice. Agreed. All yeah. right. Mike, are you ready to rip some headlines? Let's rip some headlines. It's now time for Rip from the Headlines. Mike, I've got terrible news that was released Uh-oh. from Rolling Stone magazine. Uh, I don't know if you thought about working 
at the Kelly Clarkson show. But apparently, it has come out this past week that it is a traumatizing place to work. Wait, what? Run by monsters, Mike. Hmm. Monsters, in quotations, in the story. Yeah. Ten former employees wanted to bring attention to what they consider a harmful culture. (laughs) They say they were often bullied and intimidated by producers, and it began to negatively affect their mental health. Now, listen to this. This sounds very serious, Mike. Uh, One of them said, I remember going up on the roof of the stage to cry, being like, oh my gosh, what am I doing here? Why am I putting myself through this? Jeez. The the ex-workers called uh, working on the Kelly Clarkson show by far the worst experience I've ever had in my entire life. Wow. Yeah. Now, I will mention, Mike, that employees across the board noted they do not believe the show's host, Kelly Clarkson, is aware of how bad it is for the other workers. Oh, well, that's good. Yes. We can clear her name. I do yes. like Kelly Clarkson. They believe she's been shielded from it, Mike. Ah. Yeah. Yeah. But one of them still at it. It deterred me from wanting to work in daytime ever again. Word. And I'm well. guessing... I'm guessing she shortened that for just daytime TV. I'm I'm hoping just not the daytime as in the time of day because that would really limit her options. She would just have graveyard shifts from then on. But, you know. Yeah, whatever. she couldn't be a lifeguard. <laughs> very, <laughs> very depressing, Mike, Which if you can. might be a better job for her. It could be. It you could be. You see Sam Elliott crying on top of the lifeguard roof. No, never. <laughs> He's having a great time. <laughs> <laughs> Mike, uh, you know, uh, sh- let me just say, if you're if you're not in a work environment uh, that you like, get out. You know, yes. And and if you're in a horrible work environment, um, that's not cool. You should try to find a way to make it better. Um, but I will say, by far the most worst experience I've ever had in my life. Hmm. I I can I can confidently say, Mike, if that's the worst experience you've ever had in your life, either you don't know how to properly gauge experiences in your life, <laughs> or you've had an awesome life. One of the two. Yeah. Uh, like no major illnesses, no big family issues, no financial insecurity, no food insecurity, no huge accidents, like. I'm just going to say, like, yeah. I'm going to need a little bit more evidence in how horrible this was at the Kelly Clarkson show, you know? Yes! Yeah. Bottom line, Mike, I think we can all, uh, we all know what this means. Justin Garini once again has come out on top. That's right. Number two has come out to number one. Fantastic. Woohoo! Justin from American Idol, the second place dude. Okay, I was like, uh, yeah, Doctor, yeah. I'm gonna let you finish this. I don't know what you're L- talking about. <laughs> listeners had no idea either. They were like, Who? the guy that nobody remembers that came in second place uh, to Kelly Clarkson, yeah. who's little sweet from Doctor Pepper commercials. Uh, Mike, real quick, you ever open up the uh, sad internet browser, uh, Microsoft Edge? Uh, by accident. 
Sometimes it just opens up automatically. Yeah. 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 It's to nobody, always by accident. Nobody uses it. Nope. Um, no. But there's one thing I love about it. And it's that, you know, the, the, the clickbait stories come up automatically, mm-hmm. you know? Yeah. And you can thumbs up or thumbs down the stories that are posted. That's right. And uh, I was going through the news stories on there, and there was a headline. And this is the headline. Quote, giant armadillos have been filmed having sex in the wild for the first time. Word. Hmm. Okay, so after you thumbsed up that article, uh, what do well, we that's, have? That's the thing. I looked at it, Mike. 103 people thumbs upped it. 358 thumbs downed it. Ah, oh, come on. And I got to say, Mike, who's inclined to do either? That's what I just like. I just, I just thought I was like, who, who's the person's like, finally? Somebody has captured those phone fantastic animals boning. Thumbs up. <laughs> right? Yes! Or who's like disgusting? Nobody needs to know this. Thumbs down. Gross. No, like just the option, Mike, it amazes me. I didn't look at the story. Yeah. I don't know what's going on with them having sex. Uh, oh, hopefully. come on. <laughs> I mean, they, they still exist as a species, Mike, so I'm guessing they're doing it pretty often. But, you know, regardless. Yeah. Uh, Mike, uh, this is a fairly quick one here. Uh, I saw a story that Vladimir Zelensky, you know Vladimir, right? Mm-hmm. The uh, ruler of, of Ukraine. We've talked about him a couple the times. ruler. Yeah, yeah, president, I guess, would be better. That did give it a very uh, uh, autocratic sound to it. Um, But uh, he met with the Pope over the weekend, which was cool, you know? He went to the Mm -hmm. Pope, and you're like, all right, nicely done, Pope. Uh, But I saw some videos of the the interaction, and uh, the Pope actually has, he has an office. Like like a straight up office, hmm. like wood walls and like a, a normal office desk with a, a desk and a chair, and he's got like a mini crucifix on the on the desk, like <laughs> you know, like a couple of like pictures on there, and I was just like, what does he need that for? What is what is the what is what kind of paperwork is the Pope doing? Is, <laughs> Uh, Jimmy, hey, Jimmy, could you uh, come into my office for a second? Yeah, I crunched the numbers. <laughs> I crunched the numbers, and um, there's no there's no way to say this nicer, but uh, Jesus hates you. Yeah. <laughs> it's a bummer, I know. I looked at the spreadsheet. It proves it. So I'm sorry. So that's bad for you. But anyways, have a good day. All right, get out of my <laughs> office. I got other work to do. Like He's got like a quill on his desk. Yeah, um, you know. Mr. Pope. It, it's crazy. It's, I just, I was like, why? Why is there a desk? Um, Mike, big news from Sports Illustrated. Say what? Big news from Sports Illustrated. Martha Stewart is going to be on the cover of the Swimsuit Edition. Finally. Finally. 81, Mike. She is yes. 81 years old. My goodness. And I got to tell you, Mike. You take a gander at these pictures, she's killing the game. Yeah. She's Dr. killing the game. She's looking good in them. Yeah. So true. You know? And I'm, I'm not just mm. exaggerating to be nice. She's looking good. She is looking good in those pictures, you know? 
Now, uh, Mike, uh, you know, I know uh, you're in a fairly serious relationship. But yes. given the chance to take yes, I would. Martha Stewart. <laughs> Jackpot! Don't tell his don't tell his girlfriend, everybody. It just happened. He she said, knows. She already oh, knows. <laughs> oh man. Oh my gosh. Sweet. Oh, she Martha Stewart is on Mike's uh, uh on Mike's pass list. Oh yeah. Top she is. top 5. <laughs> yes. Nope, the only one. The only one. Top <laughs> She's one. She's the only pass. <laughs> top 1. I love it. But uh, listeners, if you get a chance, check out these pictures. She's killing. Mm. And if and if I'm wrong, tell me I'm wrong, but I'm not wrong. Nope. So check them out, you know? Check them out. Um Mike, uh, before we go to break, gotta bring up a new trend apparently that's happening on TikTok. Oh, yeah. There's a new hashtag that's getting a lot of views. The hashtag Everything Shower. Everything Shower. Yeah, has over 170 million views on it. That hashtag, Mike. 170. Now, if you're thinking that sounds like you do everything in a shower, you would be correct. That's mm. what it is. Uh, one influencer explained an everything shower in a video. Uh, she explained this. Uh, she washes her hair. She shaves her legs. She shaves her armpits. She deep conditions. She exfoliates. She does her skin care. She does everything in the shower. She then added an everything shower with hot water and Taylor Swift is better than sex. Word. Mm. Now, Mike, I'm going to immediately rebuke that and say it really depends on who you're having sex with. Yeah, definitely. Martha Stewart. <laughs> maybe. <laughs> Jackpot. Yes. <laughs> Anybody yeah. else? Maybe not. Mm -mm. Everybody else falls short on that one. <laughs> no way. But, Mike, I, I, if all these folks who love their everything showers uh, will kindly direct themselves to season nine of Seinfeld, episode 165, they'll see that Kramer was the original creator of the everything shower. Wow. Okay. I, think, I don't know if you remember this, uh, this episode, Mike. But he decided that he was just going to stay in the shower all day and just do everything <laughs> in his life in the shower. That's ah. what he decided. Yeah. So he was the creator of everything shower. So OG. guess what, TikTok? You're not coming up with anything new. You're not. No way. You're just recycling old stuff. All right? Mm -hmm. Mike, we are going to take a break. We are going to hear from our guest. This is Andrew Hagar with Leave It Alone right here on the Doc G Show.
And we are back here on the Doc G Show. It's been a radio, WSKRLP 95.5 FM in Jacksonville, Florida. Mike, what do the listeners need to do? Doc G, I'm so glad you asked. Mm -hmm. If the listeners feel like the show is a positive way to waste their time, Mm -hmm. they should please subscribe on Apple Podcasts or wherever they get their podcasts. It is a cost-effective way to support the show. And if the listeners are feeling extra generous, please leave us a five-star review. Bingo. Love the reviews. We also love comments. Leave a comment. Bingo. And listeners, if you want to be in the Mike C. Doc G. movie review crew, hmm. watch Air for next week. That's what we yeah. got going. We're going to watch go. Air, and we're going to have a review about it. And you better believe it's going to be just as good as the Lifeguard review. Oh, yeah. I'm not saying I'm not saying the movie will be as good as Lifeguard. I can't can't promise that. Yeah, I don't know I don't know what Matt Damon and Ben Hooflick got bacon in the oven, but we'll we'll see what they got. We'll see. I'm uh, we'll I'm, see. I'm I'm pretty high on it. I saw him talk to uh, um, Charles Barkley. I saw uh, the Ben Affleck Charles Barkley interview a couple uh, weeks back. It was pretty good. Pretty solid. Yeah. Yeah. So you know? true. I got to be honest. I don't think married life is for Ben Affleck. Nope. No? No. Why do you say that? I think it's not for him or Jennifer Lopez. As soon as they start, as soon as they got married, they just seem unhappy. Like, yeah. they just instantly, they were all super happy when they were when they were going out. And now every picture is just them like, Bleh. Blame. Ugh. It yeah. just seems like it's wearing on them, man. I don't know. Maybe it's just me. I don't know. It just doesn't seem doesn't seem for those guys like some people it seems for them even when they get even when they get a divorce like 15 years later it seems like it's for them like that whole 15 years yeah. they were just like jazzed you know mm-hmm. but like for them no it doesn't seem like that doesn't seem that's, it's that, that's interesting just, that they broke up and they got back together yeah exactly that's, that's another thing that you're like so you're telling me it, it, 10 years ago you were like now nah, this this will never work and then 10 years later you're like you know what let's give it another shot <laughs> Let's try that out. Like, you know, that yeah. just doesn't seem like a smart thing, Mike. Yeah, uh, I don't know. Yeah, regardless, Mike, I, we have diverged way too much. We need yeah. to thank the folks that listen to the Doc G Show, the regular listeners. That would start with the five-star listeners. Here oh, we yeah. go. Shout out. Shout out to Jacksonville, Florida, Columbia, South Carolina, Radford, Virginia, Gainesville, Florida, Frankfurt, Germany, Anoka, Minnesota, Ashburn, Virginia, Piracai, Brazil, San Diego, California, Dublin, Ireland, Boardman, Oregon, Genoa, Italy, Italy Richardson, huh? Texas, Barcelona, Spain, Winfield, West Virginia, Biloxi, Mississippi, Tulsa, Oklahoma, Peoria, Illinois, Katy, Texas, Toms River, New Jersey, Olive Branch, Mississippi, Asheville, North Carolina, Los Angeles, California, Spartanburg, South Carolina, Athens, Georgia, and Baton Rouge, Louisiana. Two screw-ups in there, Mike, but thank you. <laughs> For the listens, everybody, we do Thank appreciate you. it. Tripped right there on what was that? Italy, I, Italy. Yeah, yeah screwed up on Italy and screwed up on uh, Asheville. Asheville, mm. I do. No, 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 no. I, uh, Olive Branch, Mississippi. That was the screw ups. Sorry, guys. Let me give you your your due. Thank you, Italy. Thank you, Mississippi. We appreciate yes. it. Um, Mike, we need to thank uh, the uh, four-star listeners. Shout Here we out. go. Uh, shout out to Cary, North Carolina. They were coming in with some some big numbers this week. Shout out to Cary. 
Yeah. Shout out to uh, Bloomington, Indiana, home of Indiana Uni- University of Indiana. There, Mike. Uh, shout out to Huntsville, Alabama. Been to Huntsville several times. Mm-hmm. No offense, there's not too much in Huntsville. No offense, guys. No. I'm sure you'll probably understand the Huntsville listeners. They're like, nah, there's there's not too much. Uh, I think I ate at a McDonald's there, I want to say. Sweet. Oh, okay. Some type of fast food. It might have been Wendy's. Girl, come Can't on. remember. Can't remember. Uh, Montmore, Brazil. Shout out to them. Shout out to Chicago, Illinois, home of the famous J-Chips. <laughs> Shout out to Clarksville, Tennessee. Shout out to Muscle Shoals, Alabama. Mm. Shout out to San Francisco, California. Shout out to Wooden, Australia. By the way, Mike, I don't know. I think I'd have to go back and look, but all-time listens, I'm 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 pretty positive San Francisco is still in the top 10 all-time listens. Mm. Oh, okay. Because we used to get a bunch, a bunch of listens at the start of the show from San Fran. I don't know. We must have done too much to offend them. Something offended <laughs> them, and they stopped listening. Um, Newport, Tennessee. Shout out to Newport. Shout out to Boynton, Virginia. Shout out to Houston, Texas. And lastly, shout out to Henderson, Nevada. Shout out. There yes. we go. There we go. There we go. Mike, um, we need to open up the miscellaneous file real quick. This is something Ooh, really yeah. dumb. So, uh, listeners, if you want to go ahead and fast forward through this uh, or just listen to something else for five <clears throat> minutes, feel free. What? But I got, I got I, this, is, this is just a, a learning. This is what I do with my time, Mike, because I don't spend my time wisely. Nope. So, uh, on social media, I came across a post about cats. And, of course, I'm going to check it out because I like the little fuzzy guys. So, I got to oh, check yeah. it out. And it says... Uh, it, this is a post from a lady, and she's like, I've always been worried about my indoor cat uh, might run away and get lost. Mm. But today, I found out that cats can smell their litter box up to a mile away so they can find their way back. So if your cat ever goes out in, you know, and gets lost, just put their litter box outside, and they'll always be able to find their way home. Mm. And I was like, wow. And first of all, I thought, I was like, man, how embarrassing is that for the cat if that's true? You know? He's like a mile down the road and he knows it's his crap that he's smelling and like a lady cat walks by and he's like, that wasn't me. If you smell that, that was, uh, I don't know where that came from, but it's totally not me. <laughs> it's not my litter box. So just wanted you to know. Like, but you know, then I started thinking, like, is that true? Like, think about that, Mike. A mile away and you can smell your own crap? Like, yeah. how many things are in the air? Yeah. In between, and I was just like, I mean, I know there's some amazing smell out there. And I was like, but that just seems pretty wild, you know? So I yeah. looked into it. Because like I said, I spend my time wisely. And there isn't much research on this, Mike. There's literally like one study that looked at cat smell smelling abilities over distance and they did find that cats can like basically find their way home one and a half miles to four miles away from that home but it's not necessarily all due to smelling so it wasn't just smelling that they were doing that finding their way home you know 
Hmm. And I found out that basically it's pretty much split down the middle, Mike. Pretty even divide on whether people actually believe this is true or not. That that this actually helps them find their way back home. Basically split. Mm. But okay. I will say one thing that I, I didn't know, and I'm a little uh, embarrassed to say that I didn't know this. Uh, I did find out about another way that cats smell better than us. They have something called the Jacobson's organ. And it's, mm. this, it's this little thing right at the top of their mouth, right behind their front teeth. And it's basically like a second nose. Like literally, it's a, it's a better honed nose that smells like really intense stuff, things that we can't even smell, like pheromones. It can, it mm. can smell pheromones. So that's why if you ever see a cat, when they get around something super funky, they'll open their mouth a little bit. And they'll just sort of put their yeah. mouth open. That's why they're doing that. They're using oh. the Jacobson's organ and smelling mm. whatever that is. Yeah. Wild. Interesting. Wild. So, Mike, that was a complete waste of a couple of minutes. There you go. <laughs> we appreciate it, though. Yeah. Now we know. Yeah, a little bit. The more you know. The more you know. Yeah. But we've got... Hey, I was going to say, look, lady, this the cat knows where he lives. He's just running away from you. They just don't like you. That's they let's be, they're like, you know what? I can find my food out here. I don't need that turd rubbing up on me all the time. No, thank you. No way. Um, Mike, we've got unfinished business in a segment called Previously on the Doc G Show. Previously on the Doc G Show. Mike, um, 2013, uh, there was a big sale of shoes. You mentioned this, and uh, this was uh, this is related to our segment, uh, the Mike C Top Three. Uh, in the Mike C Top Three, uh, we were judge or we were bringing up the three three uh, sports memorabilia items that we would want the most, and uh, one of the ones that we talked about was the flu game Jordans. Mm-hmm. And so you brought up when the flu game Jordans were sold, and I was like, I think they've been sold after that. I was wrong, Mike. I was wrong. I was I was thinking of another shoe. So let me set the record here. In 2013, the ball boy Preston Truman. Got a name is Preston Truman. Mm-hmm. Preston Truman sold the flu game Jordans that Michael Jordan gave him in 1997 for $104,765. Which, I mean, you know, that's a pretty good investment, but you think about it, like, uh, sort of like we did the other day, uh, the uh, other uh, the other show, you could probably get, like, Apple stock and almost do as good amount, uh, a good uh, number on that from 1997 to 2013, you know? Oh, I mean, it sure. really did increase, but, like, you know, I'm just saying. But anyways, Mike, uh, they were never sold again. They were sold then. They haven't been put out on the market again. I was thinking of another shoe. I was thinking of the last dance shoe. It was a pair uh, of shoes that he wore in the second half of game two of the 1998 NBA Finals. He signed Mm -hmm. those and gave them to another ball boy. I'm guessing it wasn't the same ball boy. Uh, They didn't have the ball boy's name listed in this one, so I'm guessing it wasn't. But these were sold uh, just about a month ago. 
and they were sold for $2.2 million. Wow. Jeez. Yeah. Yeah. Now, I also looked it up, Mike. Uh, a jersey that he wore in game one of the 1998 finals uh, was sold for $10.1 million back in September. And it became Whoa. the most expensive piece of worn sports memorabilia ever sold at auction. That's so sick. $10.1 million. Wow. The most expensive piece of sports memorabilia ever is the 1952 Topps Mickey Mantle card that was sold for $12.6 billion. So there you go. Did you say billion or you said million? You said million. That. I probably yeah. said billion. I'm stupid. $12.6 million. It, it's, it's all... It's all funny money to me, Mike. I'm never going to have that. Come on. We all know yeah. that. Yeah. I might get a replica of that card, Doc Jesus. <laughs> I don't care. Anyways. Mike's like, I need more replicas in my I life. Need more replicas, man. I got this. Need those, Anyways. man. I just need more pirate treasure. Ooh. Anyways, Mike, we are going to take a break. We are going to be right back with none other than the man himself, Andrew Hagar, right here on the Doc G Show. The Doc G Show, because sometimes you need something playing in the background. Every Wednesday at 7 p.m. on 99.5 FM, Spinnaker. This is 95.5 Spinnaker Radio. WSKRLPFM, UNF Jacksonville. Welcome back to the show, everybody. We are very happy to be welcoming a talented songwriter and artist who just released a new single, Systematic Minds, a couple of weeks ago and has a new EP, Limited Edition Psycho, just around the corner. Mr. Andrew Hagar, how are you, sir? Doing great. How are you doing, Doc? Doing good, man. Doing good. I uh, I definitely want to talk music, but uh, I, just, I just noticed I was... Uh, Looking on your Instagram there the other day, and uh, I noticed you were you were cooked from leg day. You were yeah, yeah. You were cooked. Yes, I was. And I I love talking walk uh, workouts. Uh, take yeah. take me through an Andrew leg day. What goes on? Oh man, um, I warm up with some weighted sled, mm -hmm. like just pushing and pulling a sled for mm -hmm. about like seven to ten minutes, just to warm everything up. Mm -hmm. Uh, warm up my hips with like some, you know, kettlebell swings and stuff. And then uh, I usually hit front squats and then I hit like, um, like Poliquin, was it Poliquin step ups to warm up my knees and stuff. Mm -hmm. And then we got um, just like wicked, brutal, like heel elevated, close knee position, like grass squats, like also known as like flat squats mm -hmm. um, to really get it working. Um, I hit like a, a hip hinge that isn't so like crazy to like to do deadlifts and squats on different days, but I do like um like a lower tier hip hinge on the same day. So I'll do like single arm deadlifts, something like that, um, with a little bit less weight for a little bit higher volume. Um, so you're going I like, to like hit some of that. 
functional functional training is what you're going oh on. yeah yeah i mean i've been a i've been a combat sports athlete pretty much my entire life so you know i do i do heavy compound lifts at the beginning mm-hmm. and then i work like higher volume more like strength and conditioning stuff on the back half of the workout mm. but um yeah leg day for me like like i said i, I typically do like heavyweight front squats and heavyweight um plat squats and then the rest of it is mostly like high volume strength and conditioning style training where I'm doing either supersets or like cluster sets. Now, uh, it, and it's just brutal. Is the is the <laughs> overall goal just being just being as fit as possible? Is that what you're going for? Pretty much, yeah. I mean, I've been trying to get stronger. I only really started lifting heavy within the last couple of years. Mm-hmm. Before that, most of my weightlifting was just like sports specific strength and conditioning style training. A lot of kettlebell stuff. A lot of uh, high volume dumbbell exercises and everything. And then um, during the pandemic, I started like just lifting heavy because all the gyms were closed and I couldn't really train. Plus, like, something. I'm getting older. I got a lot of a lot of back, like back, shoulder, knee injuries. Like I said, I mean, uh, you know, I was a Muay Thai kickboxer for a long time, fought a bunch, trained people a bunch, worked with like some world champion athletes. And holding mitts for like over 10 years for heavyweights, like, you know, both of my shoulders are jacked. I got lower back problems taking all the lower body shots you know like all, all this stuff so you know just in general like these days i'm just trying to stay fit and maintain a good healthy regimen with discipline so that i can do it for the rest of my life yeah. and just stay ahead of the curve you know? I, I heard i think i heard somewhere uh, you <laughs> talking about anterior tib yeah. really saved uh saved <laughs> yeah. some of your work yeah i mean uh to kind of heal my knees i have no meniscus left in either mm. of my knees I had my first knee surgery at 25. Like I said, I've, I've been through the ringer um, athletically. So when I stumbled on the you know knees over toes guy, Ben, um, mm-hmm. I was very skeptical at first because obviously a lot of what they're teaching goes completely against all athletic standards that we grew up with in like PE and stuff. But then I started doing the exercises and I started noticing like a market improvement in my mobility. Mm-hmm. Um, and nowadays, it's like I, I can move better than I have in a long time, in years. And I credit that to the ATG program. So, yeah, I, I'm def- definitely a convert, man. <laughs> I I think I think most of his stuff, it is like you said, there, there, it it is contradictory to what you would think. But the big thing is there's a lot of, of muscular balance stuff that he goes into uh, that a definitely. lot of people overlook. And, I mean, it, it's not... That stuff isn't necessarily against what we sort of think about working out. So, like, you know, mm-hmm. uh, increasing the strength of the anterior tip, increasing the balance yeah. between your glutes and your hamstrings, uh, you know, all of those things make it a lot more functional, make you a lot more able to actually do those lower body movements. So it's one of those things that, like, Absolutely. you know, I, I can sign on to some of the stuff. Some of the stuff gets a little bit out there, and I'm like, all right, a little too much. But yeah, you know, you know, but for the most yeah. part, that's that's good. That's good. Well, now you mentioned, I mean, mixed martial arts is what you got, uh, what you were into for most Mystery of your life, life. there. Yeah. yeah, and and I heard, I got very excited. I heard you were inspired <laughs> initially by Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. <laughs> yes, sir. That is correct. Yes. <laughs> Now, now, considering your age, I'm going to assume this was the real deal 1990 movie, right? Oh, yeah, yeah. I mean, this this yes. was like the cartoon, the original film, nice. like all the toys. Like, yeah, I was I was a 90s kid, early 90s. So, I mean, I had like, you know, 
had Krang and everything and like all that stuff when I was a kid and was playing around with all that stuff. I, I loved the Ninja Turtles so much and I just wanted to be a Ninja Turtle. Which you know? one? Like when I was, <laughs> uh, when I was a kid, I really liked Donnie because he always had great yes. ideas. But as I got older, Mikey became my favorite for yes. obvious reasons. Yes, <laughs> I'm on the exact same. I'm on the exact same path. Right. I love Donatello. I was more into the, <laughs> yeah. his staff. You know, I just liked right. that as a weapon. I was like, oh, that seems easy. I wouldn't have to learn yeah. too much there. Just, <laughs> I like that, right? But yeah. the, but then the older I got, I was like, this guy parties. I want to be the yeah, guy that exactly. parties. He looks fun, you know. Who doesn't want to be the guy that parties, you, especially when you're a young man? You, you know what I mean. You watch. <laughs> you watch the original movie. He's the guy just flipping the the nunchuck on his finger, and you're like, "Look at him. He's so cool. I want to do that." Exactly. The life of the party, man. <laughs> man, I I will, and I you know I love that movie. I, I and I've I've talked to so many people about this movie as far as like what I love about it, but like that hangout that warehouse in new york where the potential yeah. foot clan soldiers hang out i still want to hang out at that place i'm like how cool is that oh man it's i mean yeah, they gotta turn it into like a like a bar or something yeah or like i don't even know what they're doing with it but yeah i mean that needs to be a place you can go i agree arcade <laughs> machines gambling yep. skateboards basketball oh yeah no parents. They look like the coolest place on earth. This is amazing. <laughs> like I was just like I, I I definitely don't want to join the clan. I'm not down with their calls, but I will hang out at their location. I this you know. <laughs> but I I actually so I heard along with uh, Ninja Turtles. Uh, I don't know if this inspired you, but you actually have combat sports in your family. Your granddad was a boxer. Yeah, my, my father's father was a professional boxer locally in like the Fontana, Southern California area. Wow. And he was a title challenger, very, very good fighter. Uh, he was a little guy. I think he fought at like lightweight or even smaller than that, like flyweight. Jeez. And uh, he had a lot of power in his hands, knocked a lot of people out. He would do these like, because he was an alcoholic and he spent most of his winnings on that liquor, unfortunately. But um, he would do these like kind of freak show fights where he would get in there with bigger guys out of the crowd and usually knock these guys out with one or two punches, which is hilarious to me. Oh, but um, yeah, he was kind of a legendary local guy, and it's unfortunate what ended up happening to him. But um, but yeah, combat sports definitely runs in the family, so it was yeah. fun to kind of go on that journey and uh, and see for real what my what my grandpa was doing with newspaper clippings and all kinds of stuff. It's uh, it's interesting to be a part of something like that for multiple generations, you know. Yeah. Well, now I I mean you know you like we talked about turned this interest into a career uh now mm -hmm. eventually you got into mixed martial arts journalism you were you were following yeah. the uh the competitors but what 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 moment was there a point like you know in college because i know you you were you were fighting you had some serious injuries was there a point before mm -hmm. the serious injuries that you realized like what I'm probably not going to be the next Anderson Silva. Like, was there was there a point that you realized, yeah, I mean, or was the injury it? My 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 first fight, like I had a, a sports related injury to my knee when I was about 17 years old, and so going into it, you know, when I moved down to LA to go to college and start training with the goal of going professional one day, I was already working like, you know, with with less than what I needed to be a professional athlete, but. I mean, I was training really hard, and I actually started doing journalism right at the same time as I started competing in the amateurs around 18, 19. Um, so 
so I was I was going to school full time. I was writing and like on my weekends and all my you know days off from school, I was driving up to like Lamore, Porterville, or wherever I needed to go to cover like King the Cage, Gladiator Challenge, like smaller MMA organizations for SureDog, which was at the time the biggest MMA website on the planet. Mm-hmm. And uh, I was also writing for like Grappling Magazine, which was another huge publication. And I just I landed these jobs by literally. I was on the on the forums on SureDog one day. I saw the guy who created the place, Jeff Sherwood, was on there. On his profile, he had like an AOL Instant Messenger handle. This is how old this was. And uh, I hit him up on AOL and asked him if they needed any new writers. And he gave me a shot at covering Gladiator Challenge. And it was funny because uh, one of the guys that we trained with at Real American Wrestling, an old school gym with like Rico Ciparelli, Frank Trigg, like Vladimir Matoshenko, all these old school UFC guys. One of our guys was fighting and so one of my training partners, this amazing Japanese athlete named Kengo Ura, he was up there cornering the guy. And we were walking around and like everybody was coming up to Kengo and like bowing to him, shaking his hand. And I was like, what the hell, man? You're like a celebrity. He was just Kengo. He was super cool. And, you know, the nicest guy. But um, I was like, what, what the hell? And he, and he pointed to his, you know, messed up call fire. And he was like, you know, this, this is what it is. He's like, this is, this is like my celebrity. And I was like, oh, interesting. Okay. <laughs> so he was... He was just an old school competitor and everybody in the game at that point knew him because he was kind of a legend already, even back in like 2003, you know? Yeah. So, um, but it was cool back then. It was like, if you saw a guy wearing a tap out shirt, which is a, you know, a meme these days, like you instantly had a kind of camaraderie. You knew this person at least trained, you know, you could talk about some stuff and they were like a very small part of a very small group of people back then. Um, and it's been really cool to see the way that the sport has evolved and grown, you know, through ESPN and even like Spike TV and stuff back in the day. It was like every little level that you hit was, it was really cool, man. It was like people who grew up, you know, skating, watching skateboarding become like popular. I'm sure there are a lot of people, a lot of neckers out there that didn't like it, but at the same time, it's what's best for the fighters and the athletes and everybody else working in the sport. But um, my moment when I realized I wasn't going to be like an incredible world beating professional fighter I mean, after my first amateur fight when I was 18 years old, I was like, I had had a couple scraps, you know, through high school and stuff. And like, I wasn't like a stranger to, you know, the language of violence. But when I got in there in the ring, it was like a different story, you know, all of the nerves leading up to the fight and everything. Um, and in smokers, you, you weigh in same day and then you fight. So you're a little depleted when you're fighting if you're cutting any kind of weight. You know, maybe you didn't eat breakfast, maybe you didn't dinner night before. And it's... All of the nerves and everything, the performance anxiety, it all gets to you. And you go in there and you perform at like a fraction of how you, you operate in the gym. And you have to work really hard for years to be able to perform even like three quarters of how you are in the gym. You might never get to the point where you're the athlete you are in the gym. So yeah. when I got out of the out of the fight and finished, I lost a split decision in my first fight by a guy who had way more fights than me. Back in the day, North Hollywood Muay Thai Academy, they just kind of matched you up. And if you weren't from a big Muay Thai gym, they threw you to the wolves. So, uh, yeah, I think this guy's name was Neil Dunn. He's a big British guy, like almost six feet tall. And I'm not a tall guy. So that was an interesting fight. But I hammered him with overhand rights and, you know, low kicks and stuff and barely lost a split decision. So, but when I got out of there, I remember my coach Rico Ciparelli asking me, hey, what would you think? Did you like it? He's like, if you don't like it, that's fine. You should just know like straight out the gate you don't like it and don't do it 
And I wanted so badly to be a pro fighter. I was like, oh, yeah, I liked it. But in my heart, I was like, man, that was terrifying. I never want to do that again. <laughs> and I did it again and again. But, uh, yeah, I knew at that moment, I was like, maybe this is not the move for me, you know? Yeah. But I still plowed ahead for, like, another 10 years. And then, um, you know, around 2008, 2009, I quit my corporate job and started training people full time uh, after I had knee surgery, you know, just to try to make some extra bread. And it was uh, one of the best decisions of my life. It ended up being a tremendous career path and got to work with a lot of really great athletes and, you know, yeah. enriched my life in a lot of ways. So, well, before I go to the, the training, uh, you you got to see like the switch the sort of you mentioned it the the UC the the UFC sort of popularization and and switch to the oh, yeah. Dana White mode like were <laughs> yeah. were were you a fan before I mean before Dana White before uh, you know like in the extreme oh, yeah. UFC the sumo yeah. wrestler I mean, versus the yeah that that. Absolutely. Like, I, I watched UFC 2 on pay-per-view with my dad, you know, and then I would go rent UFCs at Blockbuster. Like, I've been a fan literally since the very beginning. And, uh, I mean, I was a martial arts fan my whole life. I started training karate when I was five years old. And I uh, was really interested to see. Because as, even as a kid, like, when you're training traditional martial arts, and, like, I got into scraps and stuff, like I said, like, I realized real quick that, like, the stuff we were learning in the gym wasn't the stuff Not that applicable. was going to, like, get me in yeah. trouble. Yeah. No. And, like, my dad taught me some boxing and stuff when I was a kid, so that was the stuff that was saving my ass. And, you know, to, to see, even as a small child, like, a guy that was, like, a karate practitioner going there against somebody like Tank Abbott, who was just, you know, marketed as a brawler, obviously had some, like, technique beyond yeah. that, was the first guy to incorporate gloves, you know, which was really smart so he didn't break his hands, like, all that stuff. But, like, to see a guy like that just absolutely throttling guys with, like, multiple-degree black belts, that was, like, an eye-opener as a kid. I was like, okay, I need to find something that's, like, real. Yeah. And then shortly thereafter, I discovered Muay Thai and was like, okay, this is amazing. And at the same time, discovered Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu and submission grappling. So I was like, wow, this is this is it. Like, this is yeah. the real deal. And I was about 15 years old when that happened. So, you know, I was a lifelong fan of, of MMA before it was in it. MMA, back when it was like NHB or whatever people were calling it, you know, human cockfighting. Like yeah. All that stuff, you know? Now, now yeah. did they, did they, uh, when they switched over, were you upset? Like when they started applying all the rules, were you like, nah, this isn't U UFC, come on. No, not at all. I mean, um, I was actually really glad to see that it got regulation. I remember back, um, in the days of Arnold Schwarzenegger as the governor of California, he like sanctioned mixed martial arts and Muay Thai kickboxing fights in California. Like before that, you would have to, you know, fight either on an Indian reservation or in like these underground smoker fights where there were guys who were professional fighters that were fighting in like pro-am fights back in the early 2000s because it wasn't legal to compete. There was no athletic commission that was sanctioning it. So I was actually really happy when it got regulated because it meant that everyone could fight easier. They could actually get paid for it and could like, you know, <laughs> file on their taxes and stuff. Yeah. I, I'm sure some people didn't really like that aspect. But, you know, there, there was uh, there was just more accessibility. And I was one of those people that was pro growth for the sport. Yeah. Like I said, with the skateboarding analogy, I know when skateboarding blew up, like a lot of my friends were not happy that there were a bunch of like posers and stuff. But. I just wanted the sport of MMA to get out there because I knew it was going to be a big thing once people really caught on to it. Yeah. And to be honest, I'm really 
surprised that sports like kickboxing, like K1 style kickboxing, that that never caught on. Because I feel like that's so much more palatable to the mainstream audience than something like MMA. Yeah. Like uh, grappling is still one of those things that a lot of people, when they watch, you go to a bar and you watch UFC, yeah, like there's going to yeah. be some talkers like sitting there, oh, he's just hugging the guy, yeah. like whatever. And it's like, that's it, not pleasant. It's, really it's not fun. <laughs> no, yeah. I'm like, you know, they're like, oh, those little shots of the body on the ground, those don't hurt. I'm like, bro, everything hurts. Especially Try. when you cut like 10 pounds and you're holding water in your skin and your organs are all messed up. It's like, everything hurts it's just, <laughs> like tell me you don't train without telling me you don't train you know the, what I mean? the, the ones that make me Crazy. cringe the most watching the fights man the 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 shin kicks god those oh, it yeah. do, doesn't yep. matter man first and I, yep. I always think like the first round when i see like that first fresh <laughs> one hit i'm just like oh oh god oh, i know yeah. that stings like crap oh man yeah, and then by you, then like by the third round and it's like bruised and black and i'm just like oh God, oh, I don't know if it's going to be able to stand anymore. Oh, no. (laughs) Horrible. It's gnarly, man. But but now, uh, like you said, you you were a trainer for about 10 years working, I mean, you know, professional fighters all over the place. Now, was it music that ultimately made you switch away from mixed martial arts? Yes. Um, When I was training people and starting to develop myself as an artist, you know, my dad was always hammering into me this idea that I would have to make a choice eventually between training people and, and touring. And I was like, nah, man, I can do both. Like, you know, cause I had already started kind of tapering off the work I was doing with fighters. Uh, I'd always, I mean, I was used to joke, like I, I trained, you know, pros, amateurs, soccer moms, like celebrities, like everything in between, you know, like yeah. it's a, it's a rough game. You literally, if you want to make money and make a living doing that stuff, it's like it's you're doing private clients yeah. for six to eight hours a day. You're, you're teaching at multiple gyms. You're driving all over town. It's really rough on your body. Like, uh, but yeah, when he told me that I was like, nah, man, I can make this work. Like whatever you're wrong, dad, you know? And he was, man, he was right because uh, I was training, I was training an amateur boxer, and I called for like a right uppercut, and he threw it right straight, and he broke my middle finger. You can see it's still yeah. crooked. Yeah. Um, and this is right before I was about to go out uh, and open for like Willie Nelson for the first time, back when I was doing more folk Americana stuff. So yeah. again, if it would have been my left hand, and I couldn't, you know, fret on the guitar, that would have been a huge problem. I might not have been able to do that tour. As it, you know, stood at the time, it was hard to finger pick. So, you know, I was just using a regular pick from most of the tour because, yeah. you, you know, this, this finger's all jacked. So, yeah. you know, and that, that was the moment when I realized, yeah, no, he's right. Like, I, I can't do both of these things. And uh, I really was already starting to taper off my clients and just working with a few private clients and like one or two athletes. But um, after that, I, I really shrunk the amount of people I was working with. And even these days, it's like I still train a couple people that I like, that I like, like just my favorite fun. clients yeah. up here. Today. Yeah, just for fun, a little extra cash. And just because I still, I love coaching, you know? Mm-hmm. I like I like the enrichment process, helping people reach their goals, communicating knowledge. Like, I, I really enjoy that stuff, so. Yeah, for sure. Well, now, uh, I mean, you getting into music, you've been into music your whole life, just not performing yeah music yeah uh i I hear it at at some point back in your your life you had a radio show yeah i did um back in high school we actually uh we had the most powerful radio transmitter in all of like central california um yeah at robert louis stevenson school so i had a radio show for like three and a half years 
No, I mean, um, was it specifically for the the uh, the uh, high school, the the station? Yep. Man, it's like yeah. Saved by the Bell. <laughs> That's awesome. KSPB Radio Stevenson School in Pebble Beach. Yeah, we had, Shout uh, out. We had a really great show. Shout yeah, out. like an, an eclectic show. Um, I played a lot. I mean, I was a crazy music head growing up, and especially when I started working at the radio station, like we would get demos, we would get singles from all over the world, all over the place. And I was exposed to like a tremendous amount of music doing that. So it was great. Like I was, you know, I was eating good, so to speak, back then. Um, Cause like, you know, I'd really only heard most of what was popular in like the alternative music scene back then, you know, some metal and a lot, a lot of like punk and hardcore. And through the radio station, like I was exposed to like a lot of really cool underground hip hop bands, a lot of electronic music, a lot of world music. Um, and it really kickstarted like the next level to my love for music. Nice. So yeah, I, I loved working at the radio show and I got a, a head start on what I do now on the side, which is like commercial ad work. Uh, I do like voice acting and stuff. And back then, you know, I didn't even realize that it was applicable to what I was doing, but I had to read ads yeah. like three to five ads an hour. And, uh, I, I mean, I got pretty decent at that back then, even when I was in high school. So it's been something I, I've been doing in one way, shape, or form my entire life. You know? Nice, nice. Well, now, I, I was sort of wondering, I mean, as far as the performing side, mm -hmm. you know, getting into it so late sort of into your life, it, was, was it part of, was it because of your dad? Like, I mean, was it one of those things that you were like, ah, I don't need to do what he's doing? Like, or was it just, you just never looked at it as far as like, a career i never looked at it as far as the career was concerned because uh growing up my dad always told me to stay away from the entertainment industry <laughs> makes and sense I mean, uh, as, yeah as i was growing up that was during the period where there was all this fallout with van halen in the immediate aftermath he was kind of like blackballed from the industry in a way for a while and uh i can see why he felt the way he did but um you know like the school i went to we were we were forced into doing like theater. We were forced into singing in choir. We were forced into playing music. And obviously, I'm really grateful for all those things. At the time, I certainly yeah. wasn't. But now, you know, it's like I was on a stage in front of hundreds of people when I was like seven years old. And then, you know, fighting in front of lots of people at different gyms all over the place, you know, and competing in front of people like that. Like, I got really used to being in front of people and doing really like difficult high skill things so by the time i got into performing to a you know greater extent i had already been in front of people you for had a long the time. pressure so it's yeah. natural you know and of course like you're all there's always going to be nerves i don't know that anybody who does it you know feels zero nerves like that's crazy to me to think that you can get up there and not be nervous right it's like uh, the old fighting axiom it's like if you don't get nervous before a fight that's the fight where you're going to get knocked out yeah. you know there are guys who've been fighting for whatever a decade or more have over 100 fights and they still get nervous for a fight you have you have to that's what keeps you sharp so when you go out there and perform it's the same thing i get nerves but the second you go out there and you open your mouth and you start singing or you hit that first note like you're just like locked in present in that moment and it's like over before you know it yeah. you know so same, same way with fighting nice nice well now uh yeah. i mean so for the listeners that haven't put it together your your dad sammy hagar you you mentioned as far as van halen the name 
for the folks that are looking at any video <laughs> behind him, there's a there's a picture of his dad. Uh, awesome, yeah. awesome art, by the way. That is a cool. Thanks, uh, yeah, I don't know who did this, but it's it's amazing. Yeah, really cool little abstract piece. It's, I know? mean, it's sort of it's out of uh, it's out of uh, out of the picture, but it's a little bit like this Jimi Hendrix oh, that I have. Yeah, that's sick. Yeah. Oh man, that's really cool. It looks like smoke. Almost. Yeah, it wow. is. That's that's what that's yeah. what it is out of. But yeah, I was. That's sort of that's so cool. But um, you know, th- thinking about that uh, as far as who your dad is and and sort of his position, uh, you know, Wolfgang, uh, Van Halen had a very sort of similar route. I mean, obviously, his dad super. Uh, famous as well. I mean, he's like seven yeah. years younger than you, but like, did you? He might be a little older now. I don't know. Yeah. Did you ever? Did you ever like talk to him at any point? Like once you started performing, is like. No, I uh, I reached out to Wolfie, you know, after his dad died, and just gave him my condolences and stuff. Like, it's all good, you know. I'm happy for him. He's been, you know, blowing up, going on tour doing everything that's you know, that's expected yeah. as a musician. Yeah, Mammoth. And, and yeah, I'm, I'm stoked for him. Um, we don't really talk. I don't really know him that well. I mean, we obviously spent some time together as kids, yeah. you know? But outside of that, like, yeah, I don't I don't really know the guy too much. Mm-hmm. I mean, now, was Appalachian Murder Bunnies, was that the first sort of performance that you actually did? Was that, like, the like first on... Aside from like you were saying, aside from school and whatnot, performances was that the first like real deal performance that you had? Uh, no, I actually I had like a, a couple little punk projects. I was playing in like you know some random two and three piece punk bands, and we played like house parties and you know basements and stuff. <laughs> but it was never anything like really substantial. You know, nice. the Appalachian Murder Bunnies like the first yeah touring project that I was a part of. It was like a real. Yeah, act that got on like I mean like we played like the Newport Folk Fest and like you know Milwaukee Summer Fest and like all these big venues in Europe and like yeah it was that was crazy that yeah. was an absolutely crazy experience for me well I mean like going from that so you're in in Appalachian Murder Bunnies you're performing with with Kelly Christopherson Chris Christopherson's uh, daughter and you're opening yeah. for these like six thousand person you know, now I'm guessing that jumped the nerves a little bit from what you'd been doing before. I mean, honestly, like, yeah, I mean, I I would get nervous going out there, but like I was such a neophyte and so, so new to the idea of it. Like, um, I didn't, I mean, I'm not going to sit here and say I was amazing. I wasn't awful, but like I had no, no idea, uh, the, the tremendous depth to the lack of experience mm-hmm. I had. So I would just go out there and like all balls, you know yeah. what I mean? Like that was the big joke. Like ignorance is bliss. Exactly. And then, uh, immediately after all that stuff, I spent the next several years touring like by myself. So I would get up there in front of like the same size or even larger crowds with just an acoustic guitar and a harmonica. And same thing. It's like, I just get up there and do my best, man. You know, if people like it, they like it. If they don't, they don't. And uh, that's how I cut my teeth. That and doing a lot of local open mic nights, um, smaller clubs around L.A. where I was living at the time for several years. And, you know, I I was trying to play as many shows a year as I could. I was playing around 100 shows a year uh, for four or five years, just trying to catch up, just trying to get better, you know. And I'm really, really glad that I did that. Yeah. Well, I... 
with those with those shows with uh with opening for Chris and opening for Willie that you mentioned earlier, like you got to learn some cool stuff from those guys. Like, oh, yeah. did did you what 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 could you take from those two the most? I mean, obviously, because the music is now different that you do a good deal different. Yeah. But what what do you get out of those two as far as being a musician, being a songwriter? I mean, you know, I always looked up to Chris. Like growing up with my mom, you know, she was a, a huge advocate of you know, like cowboy poetry, like classic country, outlaw country, folk, Americana. Like I heard, you know, Willie and the boys a lot growing up around the house and was very aware of Chris and his pedigree as a songwriter. I think most people really only know about him from films, you know, and most younger people probably only from movies like Blade or something. You know what I mean? Like yeah. Whistler. Yes. Yeah. Old man Whistler. You know what I mean? But, um, but being out on the road and seeing them get up there and do it every night was, I mean, eye-opening because, you know, Willie and Chris both, like, they can do the same show with or without their band. Mm. You know, for some people, it might be even better if they're just solo. It's more intimate. You know, it, it's a different experience. But at the same time, like, their band is just adding to what they already do. I think a lot of artists these days would be very hard pressed to perform their songs without a band, especially people in the pop sphere. You know, mm -hmm. it's like, what are they just performing to backing tracks? You know, like, so it's a different experience. These guys were from a completely different era in the music industry where you had to be supremely talented in every respect to get to the level that they got to and getting to see them go out there night after night and do that and perform these beloved songs and have like huge venues full of people singing the music. It's like incredible. It's something to aspire to you know like like something to really aspire to to get to that level and to really hone yourself into like you know like a musical force like a weapon mm -hmm. um and i didn't spend a whole lot of time with willie i only went on the bus a couple times i've told a story before about you know like smoking with willie on the bus and just becoming a house plant you know that's a, <laughs> that's a funny story but <laughs> not not expected you know but um but with Chris, like, I mean, I was on the bus with him every day and, you know, we were, we were buddies. He taught me so much just about life, shared so much of his philosophy and what he'd learned over the years. And like, he's such an incredible human being. I mean, the man's a Rhodes Scholar, you know, a, a world-class athlete, world-class songwriter, world-class philosopher, and just like an all-around incredible human being. So just to be around him and have the opportunity to like learn via osmosis like a sponge i was just soaking up everything and uh i'm incredibly thankful for you know the the year that we spent doing that that was a, a huge experience for me he uh you know? you know his his life story uh getting to music just always it yeah. just blows me away so much i mean you know for the listeners that don't know you know he was he was uh had this great sort of pedigree to go through uh, the military, um, yeah. and he's on this, he's on this road. Like you said, he, he gets, he, he goes through college, uh, gets to be a Rhodes scholar. Uh, he's, yeah. he's been, he's been commissioned. He's getting ready to take his position. He takes a, a trip to, uh, to Nashville and basically yep. he just, he has to follow his love. He realizes that he loves yep. songwriting and he's like, 
Now I'm going to stay here. And he he becomes a janitor. He leaves janitor, everything yeah. to be yeah. a janitor just because he knows he's going to be closer to the songwriters as a janitor. And, like, that ability to realize, like, you know, I'm not going to be happy doing that other stuff. I can dominate in that other stuff, but I, this is what I want to yep. do. Like, it's so amazing to me. Like, it's... Uh, yeah. And then, I mean, you know, the, the songs that he's written, of course, me and Bobby McGee and Sunday Morning Coming Down and, and just, yeah. uh, I mean, for the good times, like, he's, uh, I mean, and it's like, it's like yeah. I said, the, the, the English, the writing ability, the, the, the background that he has comes through in those songs because he makes, yep. he makes so complex thoughts into such simple lyrics that you just go, wow. Mm -hmm. That's that's nice. Yeah. That's nice. Yeah. That's it's got to be really cool uh going on tour with him. Got to be super fun. Um Yeah, it was incredible. Well, now uh so like you mentioned, after you stopped uh playing with Kelly, you were still doing sort of an acoustic folk rock thing yourself. Uh yep. what made you switch over? What made you decide to go towards, you know, since 2020 the music that you've been releasing obviously it is that sort of what you were talking about, what you were into originally, the punk rock. It has more of an edge yeah. to it. It has the rock sound. Uh, what was the switch for? I mean, honestly, like, um, I, I think a lot of people aren't aware that I was releasing music under different kind of project titles all throughout my career. Like, I really only released one EP that was more folk Americana, and then I started kind of branching out. Uh, I started releasing more like psychedelic folk rock stuff. I had a, a brief stint with my friend, uh, Trevor William church of, mm. uh, of haunt, nice. um, where we did a, a cool, like garage band thing, like psych and garage rock called like Hagen altar. We had a cool little single called morning ritual, which, you know, I still get streams on Spotify for that randomly. Like there's some people out there that are like diehards and want, want me to do a Hagen altar record. You know what I mean? Gotta get it. Um, yeah, and then I had the, the SOS project with my buddy Shredmaster Scott, um, where we were doing more kind of uh, psychedelic folk rock, you know, stuff like that. But it was always going more towards rock and roll. Mm -hmm. I mean, I felt a need to kind of, I think when I was first starting, like I didn't really feel comfortable trying to do anything big in a rock sense because I was still kind of finding my vibe as an artist. Mm -hmm. And um, I mean, I'm not like a, tremendously gifted musician like i'm a decent singer and i think i'm a good songwriter but um i'm not like a virtuoso guitar player or something like that so yeah. when i'm sitting writing songs it's mostly just me with an acoustic guitar on my couch or in my bedroom or something and i wanted to present the songs the way that i wrote them and so a lot of the early production that i was experimenting with on my releases was mostly just that you know and then i'd add a few things on top my harmonica you know i play a little mandolin too so i was doing some of that but for the most part it was really just sparse production and then over the course of the pandemic you know i had like a more of an indie rock ep that was done as part of a bigger kind of lp we had like a release show scheduled in london i had a south by southwest appearance all this stuff that was just it looked like I was finally going to start making moves. And then obviously <laughs> everybody kind of got canned, you know? So, but, um, in the midst of all of that, I released like judgment day and cold knife karma, which were both like off of the EP essentially. And, um, I had a few other songs. I was talking to some labels and then all that stuff fell out. 
and my good friend Trev Lukather hit me up one day. Um, he was a really big fan of some of the songs that I had written for, you know, for the record, um, stuff like The Lucky One. And he was like, oh, man, like I had this idea. He was just starting to dabble with production. Um, and he had an idea for a song, sent me like a, a little rough instrumental bed that was really cool. And so I decided to drive down to LA and we stayed up for like that entire night and like worked on uh, judgment or not judgment day, sorry, uh, systematic minds. Yeah. And, uh, you know, and, and it became like the first song of, of the record that we would ultimately work on together. So yeah, with Trev behind the wheel as a producer and co-writing the songs, you know, a lot of the music, obviously, um, it just turned into a different thing. You know, yeah. it was like, I'm still bringing the, kind of Americana-ish, like, personal lyricism and stuff. Um, but also, you know, Trev's got, obviously, this great ear for anthemic, kind of really catchy hooks, big, like, stadium rock sounds. Yeah. And, you know, I'm bringing a little bit uh, more of an edge to it with all my, you know, alternative and punk and garage and psych, you know, background. So it's, like, it's cool. I think it's a really different, unique thing that, you know, there aren't a lot of people doing right now in rock. Yeah. A lot of the stuff you hear is very same sounding. It's very like active rock adjacent or it's like this, uh, this like classic rock revival. Yeah. There's a lot, there's a lot of good bands, you know, out there that are doing that. Like, you know, obviously Rival Sons, one of the first bands to come to mind. They're incredible. You know, Dirty Honey's great. Mm -hmm. Like there's a lot of great, more classic sounding bands. Um, but in like the, the pure rock space and the alternative rock space, it's like, a lot of it's like active rock adjacent, you know, like mm. metal chorus type stuff or, you know, full on pop punk, like, yeah. you know, MGK imitators. And so what we're doing is is very different. And I would say it's pretty unique, you know. Uh, well, I, I know you've known Trevor for uh, or Trev a, a good uh, amount of time before you actually started yep. working with him. How How long did you know him? And did you have any like trepidation doing it just because like you said you do have sort of different di you're coming from different places as far as sort of uh you know music where you're like yeah maybe not no not at all i mean uh i was i was happy to work with him because he's an incredible musician he's a, a great songwriter like first and foremost he's been doing it since he was a kid and uh, i had never really worked with anyone in a capacity like this like most of the time I'm just writing songs by myself. And yeah. then when I go to produce it, it's like I'm producing it myself with the help of some of my friends. So it was a, a new experience for me. And I had known Trev for just about a decade, I think, before we started working together. And uh, we'd always been really, really good friends, close friends. We shared a lot of, you know, similar experiences growing up um, in, a, in a really unique environment, you know? So, yeah. I felt like a kind of camaraderie and kinsmanship with him that you don't feel with a lot of people. So I felt really comfortable working with him. And uh, obviously, like I said, that the pedigree of what he does speaks for itself. So I thought it was a cool idea getting the two of us together. Like, um, so yeah, I mean, I, I didn't have any trepidation at all. Nice. Now, well, now I heard, uh, well, well, one other thing, uh, as far as systematic minds, like you mentioned, that's the first thing you heard from him. That's the first thing you guys yeah. worked on. How, how did mm -hmm. how did how did it take so long for that one to come around? Now is the we're mm -hmm. just hearing it, you know, in in May of 2023 when you guys were working on it in 2020. Yeah, uh, that's a great question. I mean, 
for a lot of people that don't know the process of the music industry, like when you're working with any type of label or distribution, especially if there's like vinyl involved, everything is pretty much beholden to lead times for vinyl, which can be nowadays anywhere from 12 to like 16 or even 18 months. Um, so I was working with a, a couple different managers over the last few years trying to find like the right person to help me kind of push this thing to the next level. Yeah. Uh, obviously, I'm a really hard worker and I always have been, whether it's been in journalism and, you know, business and marketing or in, you know, in, in the, the sport of mixed martial arts, like training my athletes. Yeah. Like, you know, hard work is the way to the goal. And I was working really hard to try to get this music out. But I had a couple different label deals that I was juggling. They didn't really go anywhere. And that held things up a lot. Mm-hmm. A couple of these men that I was working with kept telling me to, to wait. And that we had to wait for the right kind of window to release stuff. You know, and it was like I was listening to a lot of other people. I had a lot of people in my ear telling me what the best thing to do was. And all of it was betraying my own instincts, which is the worst part about it. Yeah. So here we are, you know, almost three years after we wrote the lion's share of this music and recorded it. And I'm finally starting to release stuff a little bit more consistent. So, and I'm going to keep releasing stuff consistent now because I'm completely on my own, fully independent. You know, I have no management. I have no, you know, no distribution deal, no label, no nothing. I'm just releasing stuff completely myself. Um, But there are a lot of unique challenges with that too. People think it's really the easiest time ever to be an independent artist. And it's the easiest time ever to release music. I think it's one of the most difficult times to do anything significant in the music or entertainment industry without backers because everything is so expensive Mm -hmm. and to cut through the noise and get any sort of like real meaningful traction, it's very difficult. And it's incredibly expensive tour. There's so many unique challenges. And also in the, you know, in the attention economy of social media, it's like you have to be a content creator first and a musician second. And I would really consider myself an artist. Like, I don't like engaging in social media. I mean, you, you looked on my stuff. I mostly just post just ridiculous because I'm there. You know, it's like, I, I don't, you know, it, don't take it seriously. You're not making, you're not making goofy <laughs> videos that are trying to rope people into your music and just like, no. it, 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 it is interesting. I have, I have sort of. I've interviewed both, you know, I've had artists that have came on and that's how they got people in their music was social media. And then I've had others that like are sort of like yourself that are like, yeah, all we put on there is when we're playing and some band pictures every now and then, like, you know, and like, uh, I mean, I I can, I can understand both, but it's one of those things that like to be, to need to be the other yeah, yeah. Like, yeah, it's too much. Like, and, and like you said, you you're you're an artist. Why do you need to be a, you know, a, a video creator slash, you know, a script writer slash, you know, uh, yeah. editor producer, all that crap? But, um, right. You know, with what you brought up earlier, I asked this a lot. How frustrating it was it after you had this great song of Systematic Minds, and then you you mm-hmm. can't just you know, play it everywhere. You can't just say to, Hey, here we go. Here it is. Listen to this. You tell people they're like, cool, let's hear it. And you're like, well, it's not coming out yet. I can't, can't play it. Yeah. It's really frustrating. I mean, I think any musician you talk to, they're always sitting on like a gold mine and 
the waiting game you have to play is really frustrating because as an artist, like you want to constantly be developing yourself and moving through these different phases and these different eras of your, your like artistry or whatever you want to call it, where, you know, it's like I have an emotional attachment to a song, we get it done. And then there's like a period right afterwards where you're like, Oh, this is the best song I've ever written. I can't wait to get this out. Right. Yeah. And it's like, it might not be the best song you've ever written, but you feel that way. Yeah. It's close to you. Yeah. But the further away you get from that, you know, time wise, the less it means stuff, the less it matters to you. So then if you're going to release stuff, I mean, especially if you're working with a label or like a distribution, uh, you know, channel or something like you have, a lot of lead time where like you know if i was going to release a record through a label we were going to do a vinyl i'd have to give them the completed record probably like at least a year before mm -hmm. it's going to release and then i'm just sitting there going god by the time it comes out it's like old news for me i've already moved on to a new batch of songs a new sound yeah. a new concept but everybody else it's like this is brand new to them they're going to hear it and be like oh my god this is you know hopefully oh my god this yeah. is incredible right and but you're kind of emotionally, you know, uninvested, divested from it. And it's, it's a weird thing, man. It's a really interesting kind of thing you have to deal with as an artist with the way that releases go nowadays. Yeah. Um, and then the, the other thing is like, well, if you want to just release stuff just like that, like get the song done, record it, mix and master it and release it like three weeks later. It's like you can do that, but outside of, you know, really big artists that already have kind of a huge built-in user base, it's very difficult to get any kind of meaningful traction that way. I guess outside of things going viral on TikTok, but then it's like a lot of the stuff that goes viral on TikTok doesn't really have staying power. It's kind of like junk food. People consume it a little bit and then it's gone, mm -hmm. you know? So I don't know. There's, there's a really weird, you know, dichotomy here nowadays as a creator as a as an artistic person that's trying to make art it's uh i don't know man that's why i'm just kind of like you know whatever i'm just going to release this stuff on my own if people are interested that's amazing if they're not no big deal you know what i mean i don't have really any expectations anymore i have goals but you know it's like i release systematic minds you know what? thinking well you know if people don't dig it that's fine it's it's I got more music, you know? It's interesting to me like that you know, as just talking about like the difference, like it's sort of like investments as far as investments <laughs> in, in like in financial in the financial world. When you look at social media, it's the riskier investments. It's the stock that can yeah. either make you super rich or just go for broke and it doesn't do anything. And yeah. so like exactly. then when you look at touring that's like, cool. that's your CD. That's your savings account that you're like, I just yeah, put this right. in. I'm going to get people to come out. They're going to like it. They're going to become fans. They're going to continue yep. to come back. Like, and you know, I, I think, I think the people that really love music, that's, that's the route to go. Like you get to play it. You get yeah. to, you get to reach out to your fans. You get to make new fans. It's not going to get you. Yeah. 5 million in one hit like a super viral video yep. but it's gonna it's gonna continue to grow the base and like it's just uh yeah it's like you said it's a it's a weird it's a weird world <laughs> that uh, that you're living in <laughs> yeah. as an artist um well now yeah. uh one other thing on systematic minds i, I saw mm -hmm. you had several artists in mind as an inspiration when you were making the song 
and I heard you mention David Gilmore being one of them in another interview. Um, what, yep. what were some of the other artists that you had that you were like, you know, sound wise and whatnot, you were looking to tap into a little bit for this song? Oh man, I'm I'm a huge fan of of like darker kind of music. So you know stuff like Alice in Chains, Nine Inch Nails, Stone Temple Pilots. Like I wanted to kind of pull in a lot of you know '90s alternative kind of vibes, and we I think we successfully did that all over this record mm-hmm. um, without without you know outright copying or anything. There's like some homages with certain sounds and whatnot. But, you know, everything's original. We didn't sample anything. Um, But, yeah, with this song in particular, like, given that it was the first song Trev and I were working on, this one is, I want to say, one of the most unique songs off the record because, again, it just has a different vibe. We were trying to go for more of, like, the psychic... It's, like, psychedelic folk alternative rock, but then Trev kind of injected this stadium rock anthemic kind of sounding drums yeah the anthemic hooks to it and everything um and so i think it's a really cool marriage of these different musical genres and these different you know tentpole bands for us you know because trev and i like we like some of the same music but i think we have really different musical tastes and that's why this stuff turned out so you know different and i mean when you when you hear the rest the, the album's now going to be two EPs. You know, the first one's coming out in June, Limited Edition Psycho 1 and Limited Edition Psycho 2 nice. later in the summer. But um, yeah, a lot of the songs, not just the songs that I've released so far, because those are all from like the first batch of songs that we worked in the first half of our, our writing uh, endeavor. But the, the second half of them are even more kind of out of the box and creative and going really different directions that people might not expect. So... I'm really excited for people to hear the rest of this stuff. And then, you know, the, the next era of my music is probably going to be, you know, different. It's still going to be rock and roll, but I think it'll definitely be more, you know, gritty, less polished, and probably a bit closer to what you're going to hear live, you know? Nice. Nice. Yeah, you, yeah. you got to evolve as you go, you know? I feel I feel, I feel I feel like Zeppelin's always the best example of that. They just yeah. basically Page did whatever he wanted on every single album. He's like, you know what? All right, now yeah. we're gonna do this. All right, now we're gonna do this. This is what I'm into now. Like, I mean, you know, if if you can keep the if you can keep the fans coming, that's always the best way to go. Um, that's it, and it's tough. Um, as as an artist, like you always want to change and grow and evolve and people a lot of times if you have a big record they just want you to make the same record up and over again <laughs> well and I, I, I always mention it it depends on you know it depends on who you are if that works you know yeah. ACDC uh, yep. the Ramones they're fine with making the same album over and over again and yep. everybody else is it fine works. with it too you know yeah, but, exactly. but then other artists you're like no can't do it we want to see something different we want we want something yep. new you know and uh, I mean obviously if you're the artist it makes you feel way better uh, changing uh, totally. you know you get a little tired of doing the same thing over and over again uh, well now <laughs> you mentioned limited edition Psycho 1 coming out next month um and then limited edition psycho 2 coming out later in the summer uh now is there is there going to be touring associated with both of these we're going to play some shows probably more local california washington arizona oregon kind of west coast stuff Mm -hmm. um 
in the fall, we're looking at doing something a bit more substantial. But like I said, there's a lot of challenges to us getting out there. I'm not uh, a massively independently wealthy person, despite what some people might think. Um, and it's very expensive to tour. So we're working on some stuff with a booking agency now. And if we can get this deal together, we will be able to go out in a greater capacity later this year. But um, regardless of what happens with that, next year, 2024, I know people probably aren't keen on waiting like a year for something more substantial, but we're going to be going out as part of a bigger thing and it's going to be, you know, nationwide. So nice. we will end up, you know, going around on tour like in a big way with the band and I'm really excited about that. But again, just the way that things move in the music industry, especially with tours, they book things out so far in advance. And now, is that with somebody else? Fault. Yeah. I'm, I'm guess I'm guessing somebody big. We can get we get somebody excited for uh, uh, another big act there, huh? Oh yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm not gonna announce it yet, of course. But uh, when we get closer, to, yeah, we get closer to it. Yeah, I think it's gonna be really exciting for people. And um, I'm all about like you know congruency, like trying to find a band that it, it makes Works. sense to go out with, not just paying money to get a buy on tour with someone that you know their fans don't about you know who you are what you're doing you know it's like you see that a lot and that doesn't work and when you're not working with like i said a huge fortune to just throw infinitely at this stuff you got to be smart with it so yeah i think that this thing we're doing next year is going to be really fun first of all and second of all i think the people who are coming to see the bigger band are going to really love what we're doing so that's the most important thing you got to be a, for me. you got to be impressed though sometimes when that when that opening band has nothing to do with the with the actual yeah. act and they still can win the crowd <laughs> over like that's impressive yeah. you know Alice oh, in yeah. Chains I think was one of the best sort of examples of that that they did on so many yeah. metal tours that all the metalheads yeah. were like who the are these guys and then by the end they're like you know what that man in the box kicks that's a good song i like that you know like it's pretty pretty impressive to do that but regardless andrew we are up against a break man i want to thank you for coming on the show today it's been a pleasure thank you so much for making the time i had a great great experience i appreciate you for sure listeners you can follow him on social media at andrew hagar official right now let's take a listen to systematic minds right here on the doc g show
are back here on the Doc G Show. You just heard Andrew Hagar with the fantastic song Systematic Minds there. Just talking about a three-year-old song right there, but just came out. God, that's always got to be tough, Mike. You, you make a song, it's awesome, and then you got to set on it because you're trying to come up yeah. with marketing and promotion and everything like that. Mm-hmm. Be so annoying. Lame. I can't imagine. I can't imagine making the Doc G show, like recording a Doc G show, and then waiting three years to put it out. Now, obviously, we talk about super topical things on the show, like Lifeguard from 1976. So <laughs> people would be like, "I can't relate to this anymore. It's too old." But nope. still, I can only imagine. Like if we recorded a show and then it's like, "Oh, by the way, we're putting this out three years later." What? Mm-hmm. It's just too much to wait, man. Yeah, too much. Too much. Too much. Too much. Time. And then I gotta say, getting inspired by Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, the original. Yes. Relatable. Love Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, man. Sweet. God, I could have talked. I could have spent the whole interview on Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. Did you love that first movie, Mike? Was that was that a? Oh my gosh, it was amazing. Ah. I had that. Uh, I had the VHS tape. Then I got. The, the second one was also great. Now the time traveling one was awesome. I didn't I didn't mention uh I I I definitely am not a fan of the second one as much as the first one. Like I like it, but the mm-hmm. first one far, yeah. far better in my opinion. The the second one yeah. just got a little too gimmicky with the you know, with vanilla mm-hmm. ice and they had the like cliche like trying to do catchphrases and stuff. But, like, the first yeah. one, you just got so many good points, man. Fa- mm-hmm. Favorite where he's yeah. waiting on the pizza to start, where they're sitting in the in the sewer, and Donatello's waxing poetic about Splinter not being there forever, and then you think that, that Michelangelo's really taking it all in, and he's like, that's it. Pizza dude's late. 20% off. Oh, just love... Pizza dudes got thirty seconds. Oh man! Ah, such a great line. What a great movie! Like, what an amazing. Like, it was almost like if Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles was like real life. Oh, it was. I mean, that that that's it. That that is it. Like, you know, I mean, it was. You could really imagine that these giant turtles were actually living people, and you're just like, it's so awesome. Like and what it was like Christopher Nolan directed yeah. it in a way. And know? when Raphael first meets Casey Jones and and they have the showdown in the in the park. Um Great man. Fight. Being Michelangelo when they have the showdown with the, the foot clan and he's spinning the he's spinning the uh, nunchuck with one finger and it's just and he's like, Keep practicing and he's just so kick oh God. I love it. Yeah. I love it, Mike. So fantastic. Yeah. So, and guess what? So does Andrew Hagar. Uh, yeah. Thanks to Andrew for coming on the show. Fantastic. So true. Uh, go out there, get his EP that will be coming out there, limited edition psycho. Fantastic stuff there. And now, after talking to him, Mike, I can definitely say he's just as cool as his dad. Even without meeting his dad, I'll say it. I'll say it. Yeah. Take that, Sammy Hagar. I don't know how cool you are, (laughs) but I'm saying it right now on the record. All right? Regardless, Mike, we need to move on to 
the fastest growing segment in the world. The Doc G Top 3. Whoa, 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 whoa. The fastest growing segment in the world. The Mike Z Top 3. There we go. There we go. Uh, all right, Mike. Uh, so last week you decided that our topic was going to be uh, based off of Barry Kirch's uh, love of reading. So you wanted yes. to do a simple one of favorite top three books. Top three books. Top three books. Mm-hmm. Okay. So first off, do you have any honorable mentions? Yes, I do. Okay. I have one honorable mention. Okay. Love this book. I'm just sad that the author went a little crazy or something. I don't know. Some controversy. Scott Adams, the uh, author of Dilbert, mm. or the yeah. creator of Dilbert. Mm -hmm. He had a great book, How to Fail at Everything and Still Win Big. Of course, I'm all nonfiction, uh, but that book was awesome. He definitely went banana sandwich. Uh, that's uh, don't 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 know all of the deets, but uh, yeah. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. All right, yeah. all right. Honorable mention. I like Anyways. it. Uh, yeah. What about you? My uh, my honorable mention also in the nonfiction category. Uh, my honorable mention: exercise physiology theory and application mm. to fitness performance. Uh, I like it. The best uh, physiology, exercise physiology textbook out there. So true. Um, I'm proud to say that I was once the co-worker of uh, the author of that textbook, and uh, it's the best in the game. Just so many different universities use it. It's the it's if you want to know the principles of exercise physiology, that is the textbook. So nice. So it's love it's, it. It's, it's 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 the it's the goat when it comes to that kind of thing. I, I tried to vary all of my choices, Mike. So I'll go for number yeah. three here. Um, okay. So you know you'll have the number one spot. Number three on my list, another nonfiction, uh, but a very different uh, topic. Um, the Dirt by Motley Crue. Uh, mm. Their autobiography. So good, so good, and I'll be the guy right now that says if you've watched the netflix movie it's got nothing on the book read the book it's so mm. much better it is because the the netflix uh, they, they can only fit so much in that time and they cut so yeah. much out of the actual the book is filled with so many things that you're just like you guys were effing insane what Ooh, were you doing geez. Oh, there are just so yeah. many things, man. So many. I mean, just any examples, Doctor? Well, like, come on. What's the uh, what's got to be the juiciest thing you didn't see in the documentary that was in the book? I was like, whoa, um, you guys are wild. Well, I so I I haven't Watch I can't those. actually say I've seen all of the the uh, the movie, so I can't tell okay. you if there's if there's these two things in it or not. But I can just okay. tell you from reviews that I saw that they said they cut out a whole bunch of things from the book, and. Um, two things here that I that I that are wild. One, uh, when Nikki Six was coming up before he was actually in the band, uh, he used to play a lot of punk rock. He was playing at a punk rock uh, um, venue, and there was a kid that he always thought was just trying to act like he was super hardcore punky, and he was like, "He's not hardcore punk rock. This dude isn't hardcore punk rock." And so eventually, one time he got upset enough 
he was angry at this guy enough that he grabs this dude, apparently, puts his head down on the table, and shoves a nail through his ear onto the table, like, Wait, what? Slams it down through, sticks him on the table as far as through the ear into the table and says, you want to be punk rock? Now you're punk rock. And, mm. uh, yeah. Yeah. He, That's wild. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's insane. Yeah. Now, another one, uh, this one is equally insane. Uh, Nikki Six is with his girlfriend. Um... They are enjoying some sexual activity. Sure. Uh, they finish the sexual activity. He goes out uh, side. He's also very high on several other substances. Uh, mm-hmm. uh, and uh, he goes outside of the um, the uh, apartment complex, and a lot of people start screaming at him. And he's like, what the hell is going on? And he like sees another person, and they're like, ah! And they go running the other direction. And he's like, what is... I mean, I know I look weird, but how... Why do I look so weird? And he goes back into his uh, into his apartment and looks in the mirror and realizes his girlfriend was on her period. Oh, man. And Ew. that transferred to his face and chest all mm. over... His face and chest. That's hot. Yeah. <laughs> a bit rough, my... And that's just the tip of the iceberg. There are oh, so man. many stories in that book that you're just like, what? Huh? Yeah. Metal. And the best part about it, too, is, Mike, they write it separate. So they all wrote their own book, right? They all wrote right. their own book, and then uh, another author put together their chapters. So it's mm. like them talking about the same things, but they never talk to each other while they're writing it, writing the book. So it's all based on their own memories. And so you see these different perspectives and these different things, and, and, and you know, in reality, it was somewhere in the middle but they all sort of saw it differently, and you get all of their different uh, sides of view. It's so it's it's so cool. Such a good book. Interesting. It's wild, yeah. man. Your number three, Mike. My number three would be *Man's Search for Meaning* by Viktor Frankl, nonfiction. Uh, Viktor Frankl was a survivor of the Holocaust and uh, the concentration camps he got out of there. That was a great book. A lot of uh, good advice and a good way to reconsider your life and suffering. But it was also great because I read that book. Uh, When I read that book, I left my phone at home for the seven days. Uh, I left my phone. I went to Florida and I left my phone at home for seven days. So I was reading this book and I was like, well, I guess it's not that bad. <laughs> like this guy was in the friggin' concentration camps and I just don't have my phone. Uh, so I don't know. It just made me feel a little bit better about my life. <laughs> so great book. Number that's, three, man search for me. Uh, that's a, a good way to relate, Mike. You know what? I was thinking that losing my phone was the worst thing ever, but now... Hearing this guy and how he was in a holocaust uh, in the yeah. in a concentration camp, 
you know what? My life's not that bad. Check that. Brings things back into perspective for sure. A little bit. A little bit. Mike, uh, my number two, I will now go on to my fiction reads. Yes. My number two is Catch-22, Joseph Heller. Sweet. Just just a classic of all time. Uh, If you haven't heard of Catch-22 listeners, you should have at some point in two. It's uh it's an ultimate classic. Uh it uh, came out in the 60s, early 60s I do believe, and uh it's just about a guy uh it's it's a super dark comedy and uh it's about a dude that uh basically is trying to get out of doing anything in the war and uh yeah, it's it's hilarious. It there's a whole bunch hmm. of uh there's just a whole bunch of surrealism and just absurdity in there and uh but it's also like it, it's it's great you gotta gotta read it it is a it is a good one i wrote it down i wrote it down dr doctor this is your number two book Num- catch 22 I'm, I'm gonna check that out number two man you're number two yeah. what do you got my number two amazing book all mine are nonfiction. I don't know if I ever mentioned that, but uh, Dale Carnegie, How to Win Friends, Influence People. I think everybody should read that. I think that's like a like that, that should just be a required read in school, mm. in my opinion. I think everybody should have to read that book. I mean, uh, can you retitle that one? Don't be. An it sounds exactly. like exactly <laughs> that is pretty much exactly what that book uh, is about. <laughs> which <laughs> which sadly which sadly a lot of people just I don't know if you can teach it. That's uh, it's tough. Yeah. It's tough. Um, yeah. Mike, my number one, another fiction book. Uh, this one is is heavily underrated, but I found out years ago that uh, me and uh, Will Ferrell have the favorite, same favorite book because it's his favorite book as well. Yes! Uh, Confederacy of Dunces by John Kennedy Toole. <laughs> Confederacy of Dunces. Uh, again, just uh, uh, just an outrageous, an outrageous concept. Uh, it you know uh, a little bit of a tie into uh, lifeguard. Uh, it's it's basically about this person who is perceived as a giant loser. What? Uh, Ignatius is his name, and uh, he's he's a thirty year old dude living with his mom, uh, selling hot dogs. <laughs> And uh, it's 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 hilarious. It is a fantastic, fantastic uh, um, book. And I do believe uh, I think I've mentioned this before at some point in time on the show. But I do believe they they thought about making a movie of this several times. Like, hmm. yeah, yeah. Uh, in 1982, they were going to make the movie with John Belushi, uh, and then uh, John Belushi died. Then they were going to make it with John Candy. John Candy died. Then they were going to make it with Chris Farley. And Chris Farley died. So there was actually an idea that there was a curse of the role of Ignatius there uh, in the in hmm. the uh, book there. But um, yeah, yeah, it, uh, it's just a fantastic, fantastic book. That's right. Yeah, and I just I just looked up here. Uh, BBC News included Confederacy of Dunces on its list of 100 most inspiring novels. So true. And is regularly included on the list of most funny and best comedic novels of all time. Mm. There you go. There you go. Going to give it a listen. Yeah. Uh, Mike, you're number one. Hmm. 
My number one, Doc G, is the greatest salesman in the world by OG Mandino. Um, this was actually recommended by one of uh, our favorites on the show, Matthew McConaughey. Oh, the Mac Attack. Uh, yeah, I've read this book so many times that the pages are falling out. Look at this. Ah, oh, man. Pages. But uh, yeah, great book. It's just uh, yeah, just a book about how to be how to be awesome. Huh? <laughs> Basically. Uh, apparent apparently the Mac Attack and yourself have take taken the notes to heart. So we we yes because you're both awesome. You're both awesome. Thank you, Doctor. I appreciate it. Equally no. awesome. Equally, yeah. neither is better than the other. Sure, <laughs> some could say that Mac Attack's career has taken off a little bit more than yours. A just a tiny amount. A little bit. Just a little fraction. But not much. Not much. But not much. You're gaining not, on not, it. You're gaining on yeah. him fast, mainly because of this show right here. Just oh, yeah. amazing, oh, yeah. amazing things. But, Mike, do we have our top three uh, topic for next week? Yeah, I'm going to go top three movie villains. Ooh, nice. Yeah. Ah, yeah. man, I do like a good villain. I already know mine. That, it just came. <laughs> it came right in my head. I was like, "Who do I?" I got definitely got number one. Number two and three cool. are going to be hard, but I've got my number one easy. Okay. I think again, hardcore listeners of the show will know. Hardcore listeners will already know what I'm what I'm thinking. Anyways, Mike, we got to move on. We've got two birthday suits. We got to get through here real quick. Uh, we are running out of time for the show, but the first one, I don't think you're going to get this. This is going to be a tough one. Uh, born on May 17th, 1959 in Charlotte, North Carolina, birthday suit wearer grew up mostly in New Orleans. Uh, growing up, he loved sports, playing basketball and golf. He ended up going to the University of Houston where he played golf. He graduated with a bachelor's in radio and television broadcasting. He started his career at KHOU as a sportscaster in Houston, Texas. He joined CBS Sports in 1985, where he worked with college football, college basketball, PGA golf, and NFL football. He has anchored the coverage of the Masters Tournament since 1989 and the NCAA Basketball Tournament since 1990. He is well known starting out all of his sports broadcast by saying, Hello, friends. Which, this was really nice, Mike. I didn't know this. Which was a greeting he started using uh, so his dad, who was suffering from Alzheimer's, could recognize him whenever a game was on because his dad would hear that and it would know mm. that it was his son. Very touching. I really like that. Mm. Our birthday yeah, suit wearer is a legend in sports broadcast, winning two Emmys, five NSMA National Sportscaster of the Year awards. He's also in the NSMA Hall of Fame. Name that birthday suit wearer. Hmm. I'm going to go with a guess, of course, and uh, I don't have anything for a last name, but I'm going to go. I'm going to guess the first name is Don. <laughs> no? Nope. <laughs> no, I think you'll know the right. name. I think you'll know the name, Jim Nance. Jim Nance, yeah, that sounds familiar. Jim Nance, yes, turning uh, sixty-three there for Jim, man. Man, he he started. I mean, you know, he got he got into that uh, commentating young, doing the Masters, starting at thirty years old. He's still doing. It. He's the guy. Like it's so easy to hear. Like when you listen to the Masters, you know it's him. He's the and they're getting ready to putt onto the green. And there we go. Oh, yeah. It's perfect. Nice. Yeah. You know, he's just got that. He's got that golf voice. He's got it, man. 
And that mm. uh, that's the uh, Google question about Jim Nance. Uh, most uh, Google question, has Jim Nance ever played golf? You better bet your sweet <laughs> Googler that he's played golf. <laughs> All right? He, he played at the Houston Houston University. All right? University of Houston, he was a golfer. Get your straight. Gosh, come on. All right, Mike. Last one. No, you got this one. You got this, uh, uh, this third birthday suit wearer here. Born on May 17, 1955 in Fort Worth, Texas. Our birthday suit wearer was uh, eight when he was in a crowd at the Hotel Texas just months or just moments before John F. Kennedy was assassinated. There's actually mm. pictures where you can see uh, JFK and our birthday suit wearer on his dad's shoulders looking at, uh, uh, at JFK. It's wild. Whoa. Yeah, yeah. He went on to become interested in film, going to Richmond College, where he made Super 8 films. After college, he moved to L.A. to work in film. One of his first roles was on the movie Mortuary in 1983. He earned more substantial roles in Weird Science and Aliens. In the ni- in 1990s, he hit his stride as an actor, appearing in Predator 2, True Lies, Titanic, Tombstone, he played Fred Hayes in Apollo 13 and Bill Harding in Twister. He also appeared in one uh, in one false movie and Simple Plan in the 1990s. Later in the 2000s, he achieved his biggest role of his career on HBO's Big Love. He also achieved critical acclaim with Kevin Costner for his work in the miniseries Hatfields and McCoys. His final movie was the uh, the movie The Circle in 2017. Sadly, our birthday suit wearer had an aortic aneurysm and then a stroke in 2017 and passed away. Name that birthday suit wearer. He was in Titanic. What was the other movies he was in? Titanic, the, Twister. This is the one that should do it for you, Mike. Bill Harding in Twister. Hmm. Who I mean, did, was it Bill Paxton? Bill Paxton is correct. Oh, yes. Wow. There you awesome. go. I totally forgot he was in Titanic. I, yeah, I have no recollection what he played in Titanic, but he was in there. Uh, yeah. To be honest, I think I've only seen Titanic once, so. Really? Yeah. You know, not I my not my cup of tea, Mike. Uh, it's, I don't need to. I don't need to see Leo again. Uh, you know. Uh, Nope. Save him, uh, get, b- b- sacrifice himself for this selfish lady. I don't need to see that. <laughs> I don't need to see that nonsense. No, thank you, Seriously. Mike. No, no thank way. you. I need to see. Uh, if I want to see that, I will see Blood Diamond. That's a much better sacrificing there because he's a he's an a hole the whole movie, and then he sacrifices oh, okay. himself. And you're like, hey, you know what? In the, in the end, nice job, nice job. Mm. Regardless. Not not Leo's day. Bill Paxton's day. Happy birthday to Bill Paxton. Uh, he would have been, um, what would he have been? 68, Mike. Would have been 68. Gone too soon. Bill Paxton gone yeah. too soon. Bob Saget gone too soon. Uh, uh, way too soon. Jim Nance still with us. Happy birthday, Jim. Jim celebrating yeah, birthday, is uh, 64th for Jim. 64th for Jim. Hope it's good. Mike, we have some fantastic shows coming up. I can't. Wait, 
My goodness, the shows we have. We have a returning guest next week. We have the fantastic band King Falcon. They have been on the show uh, before. They've had some major changes to their band. The last time we had them was well before you were on the show. This was back in 2020 when we had them on the show. It was like right at the start. Not at the start, but height of the pandemic. Like right near the beginning of the summer of 2020. So I remember uh, I was talking to uh, their uh, their lead singer, and we were talking about being scared of uh, of going to the the uh, gas station and putting our hands on the on the actual gas, you know, uh, just just you know infecting yourself in any way. I remember talking <laughs> yeah. about, yeah, it was uh, <laughs> it's wild. But Mike's gonna be back on the show, Mike Rubin. Not Mike. Mike will always be on the show. But Mike Rubin's going to be back on the show uh, for King Falcon. Can't wait for that. We've also got another return guest, Flip Turn, the fantastic band, coming back on. They're going to be playing two shows here in the hometown in Jacksonville. Can't wait to talk to them. They are fantastic. I love Flip Turn. Great to have the guys back on the show. And then lastly, Mike, we've got Dwayne Betts, the, the legendary rocker. Legendary rocker coming on the show. Can't wait to talk to him. He's got new stuff coming out, got new shows. It's going to be fantastic. But for now, we got to wrap it up, Mike. I have been your host, Doc G. With me, as always, the one, the only, Mikey Maximus, the Ferticus Charette. Always a pleasure, Doc G. Thank you so much for having me. And until next week, zip it up and zip it out. Zippity doo dah.